presents canceled too soon here on the real world podcasting network my name of course is Jerome Cusan and we are back here to discuss another show that has been canceled too soon this month we are talking about both seasons of Mindhunter uh, you can definitely uh, check both of us out here on other podcasts around the real world network uh, Kevin has done from broadcast depth and flooping the pig as well as uh, check out his wrestling reviews for now. You can check me out. I have done episodes of Superhero Pantheon and Pantheon Plus. Uh, we are amidst our Creature Feature Month, which has been uh, very exciting as we have discussed such movies. Uh, we'll, we have done and will be doing such movies as uh, Shin Godzilla, as well as Tremors. So that's very exciting. Uh, Kevin and I have also collaborated on a number of other miniseries, uh, we've discussed Veronica Mars, we've discussed Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, uh, we've discussed the four seasons of Barry, and of course we have been doing uh, just about two years of Cancelled Too Soon. Uh, so those are uh, the plugs in terms of what we do here. Make sure to leave a four or five star review uh, to help people discover what we're doing here at The Real World uh, and support what Kevin and I do. Kevin, uh, this is uh, this is David Fincher's foray into streaming television. A number of directors have done this where they have said, okay, instead of making a movie, I'm going to do something uh, for streaming television. And I have to say that I think a lot of those efforts have been uh, not, not nearly as successful as perhaps they should have been or could have been. I would say, and obviously David Fincher is not writing all of the episodes. He doesn't direct all of the episodes. But for my money, I, I think Mindhunter is probably the most successful in terms of film director goes to essentially be the showrunner of a TV series. This, for me, is one of the most successful. And I know this is one, this is one that I would have been interested in doing, but this is one that you actually suggested. So, Kevin, how did you feel about Mindhunter going in? And how did you feel about, and we'll keep our discussion here in the first half, to season one specifically. So how did you feel about season one? I very much enjoyed it. And I had just watched Zodiac for the first time a couple months before watching that. And it gave me really similar vibes. So I feel like this is sort of like, and, and the show comes out 10 years after Zodiac does. So it sort of feels like if you extrapolated that story into a series, you know, it's another instance of a book being turned into, instead of a movie, this time a series that's has to do with serial killers and all of that. But, a, you know, a different twist on it as you're not looking at news reporters, you're looking at the FBI developing their tactics for assessing serial killers and potential serial killers. Uh, so to me, it had very similar uh, vibes to that. And and all of that, I think, was a was a positive. I do think you get some instances of things being stretched out a little bit, but all the characters are very strong. They keep it to a pretty tight core of characters. I think the serial killers they bring in are very good. So overall, I went to it. it interestingly enough, I feel like I had only seen the pilot and I feel like the the episode, the, the show is much stronger than the pilot is in general. So I feel like if you only gave the show one or two episodes and you didn't care for it, you'd be missing out on 
a lot of really good stuff in the end. But that is also, I think, perhaps a fault of the show that it isn't exactly it. It didn't hook me right away with that first episode. It intrigued me, but it didn't hook me in for it. But I but I did go into it uh, expecting something good. And I was uh, definitely uh, pleased with season one. I do have a question, though, about something you said about this being kind of like Fincher's first show. My impression was that because of what he had to do with House of Cards and that success is what led to him getting greenlit for Mindhunter. So wouldn't that technically be his first show ish on streaming? That would be his official first foray. But essentially, David Fincher only directed the first two episodes and then he pieced out. Uh, The rule is that when you direct the pilot of a TV show, though, you are listed as an executive producer for that show in perpetuity. So that's why you're able to perhaps get like someone like Martin Scorsese has directed pilots of TV shows before. And sometimes you do get um, perhaps more famous directors directing those pilots because they get that executive producer credit. So in that instance, that was David Fincher's official first four-way into TV as a director. But in this case, not only is he a director, but he is listed as a producer. And he is in in a lot of the press and the media kind of referred to as the unofficial showrunner, which is also very unique because generally the showrunner is a writer. But in this case, it was him. David Fincher directed the first two episodes of the first season, as well as episodes nine and ten. And in season two, he then directs the first three episodes of the second season. So uh, that is that is the difference uh, between his role on House of Cards and Mindhunter. So it kind of feels like House of Cards is like, like people attribute J.J. Abrams to Lost, but he did basically the pilot and that was it. And there's really a Lindelof and Q show. So, OK, that checks out. Well, and I think one of the reasons that House of Cards was even made in the first place is the idea that uh, Kevin Spacey movies did really well on the service as well as David Fincher. So one of the things they decided to do was to kind of algorithmically bring them together. And I think that's one of the reasons why David Fincher has had a consistent relationship with Netflix for almost 10 years, because, of course, he directed the pilot, uh, the first two episodes of House of Cards, directing... Uh, many Mindhunter episodes, and he is about to release his second movie on the service called The Killer after uh, his previous movie, Mank, <laughs> is uh, David Fincher's movie that is on the service. So, I haven't seen Mank, but I hear it's uh, it, it seems like it's kind of eh, for a for a David Fincher movie. What did, did you see it? I liked it. I didn't love it. OK, I think it's a movie that I really like at the time, but it's kind of slipped from my memory very slowly. Um, unlike a lot of David Fincher movies, when it was a whatever, pandemic release too, wasn't it? Uh, kind of. Like I mean, twenty twenty. I mean, it kind of was. So I think that undoubtedly, but it was also it's going to be a streaming release regardless. Sure. Like the way that Netflix runs, so I don't necessarily know if it being a pandemic release is as much of a factor as opposed to something like Tenet, which very clearly, that is a movie that definitely was affected by the pandemic because people were not going to the movie theaters. But Got in it. terms of main Earth, that is as much of a factor. So one of the things that I wanted to discuss, and I know you did mention that you recently watched Zodiac for the very first time, which is a fantastic piece of work. Um, what is your relationship with David Fincher in terms of other movies, history with him, things of that nature? Well, David Fincher was a name that, like, I obviously knew, but, like, if you'd asked me to name his 
film oeuvre, I could not tell you exactly what he had done. So before this year, I had seen, you know, I saw Fight Club in early 2000s when I was a teenager. And, you know, I liked it fine. I didn't, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of people from our generation who covet that movie or, you know, took the wrong lessons from Fight Club, whatever you want to say. I liked it fine. And then in theaters, I saw Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I I honestly didn't like it that much. I thought it was kind of too long and a little too weird. But then I saw Social Network in theaters and I loved it. And that was pretty much all I'd seen from him until this year, until a podcast I listened to, the Doughboys, on their Patreon. They watched Gone Girl uh, in February. And I watched that and I really liked it. And they enjoyed it so much. And they both like David Fincher. They're in TV and film themselves that they did on their Patreon. Uh, they covered a bunch of his stuff. So they rewatched Social Network and Fight Club. And then and I watched and I decided I was going to watch along with stuff. So I got to see Alien 3, Zodiac, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and then the pilot of uh, Mindhunter through that. So that's what made me suggested was seeing it through there. And I really liked Zodiac, really liked A Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I feel like I liked Alien 3 up until like the last like 20-ish minutes. And I didn't watch the director's cut because that was not on streaming. But I, I want to go back and watch that. So I expanded a lot of what I had seen from Fincher significantly this year. And I liked all that stuff. So when I saw Mindhunter and I saw it was two seasons, I posited it to you asking, hey, is this something that you'd consider canceled too soon? And then it got added, which was great because we were sort of struggling might be a bit too strong, but trying to figure out what we were going to do. And so, yeah, that's really my relationship with David Fincher. I was I was excited to have this show to give me the reason to go ahead and, and delve deeper into Mindhunter. But, you know, now David Fincher, after watching all that stuff, is someone I'm definitely like, all right, if he does something, I'm going to I'm going to give it a chance. Uh, that's something I, I, I want to pay attention to. So that's my relationship with him. What about you? Uh, have you seen Seven and the Game? I have not seen either Seven or the Game. Obviously, I know the Seven, you know, what's in the box, all that stuff. But so, you no, know, the that. twist, you know, the twist in Seven. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. You should definitely yeah. see it regardless. Uh, Seven and the Game are both well worth seeing as well. And uh what a what a terrible like you mentioned Curious Case of Benjamin Button as like one of the first Fincher movies you've seen. What a terrible representation of his work. Ultimately, <laughs> it's it's just funny to me because I, I am not a fan of that movie either. I think it's it's good in theory, bad in practice. David Fincher also probably not the person I would want necessarily directing that movie. I think if you look at the rest of his filmography, though. It's it's almost cliche to say, but of course David Fincher is great. And when you've got Zodiac and the Social Network and Gone Girl and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you know that is a pretty great filmography. Again, just almost similar to Mindhunter. It's it's unfortunate that we did not get to see a full tattoo trilogy, so to speak, with Rooney Mara and and Daniel Craig in those lead roles because I think they do such a good job. So it's unfortunate, and of course, I'm also a big fan of Seven and the Game, movies that are kind of early uh, in his oeuvre, so to speak, and yeah, that is my no, relationship. No discussion with of Panic Room, I noticed. Uh, I haven't seen Panic Room. I, 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 don't, I have not rendered a judgment. That is, a, that is another movie that, you know, David Fitcher kind of has his modes, so to speak, and is very heavily focused on, you know, grisly murder, and... I know Panic Room has some elements of that, but I haven't seen it. Maybe, maybe that is definitely a movie that I need to to complete my Fincher filmography. That's what I need to see. And I, and I, guess I would watch it. 
and I guess he's directed a bunch of music videos too, but pff, who needs that? Oh yeah, like a ton of, of really great music videos. I know like Madonna, stuff like that. So like not not small potatoes names he have. And that's interesting that like uh, and maybe that used to be more of a thing because I know it happened with like Spike Jones and some others going from like directing music videos into the world of of movies. And yeah, now that now music videos are basically don't get made unless they have some sort of backing from like a cell phone company to put that in their video, uh, something like that. Uh, and then I think he has David Fincher has a uh, another psychological movie coming to Netflix this year. The Killer. Uh, the killer. Yep. Yes. Which I'm uh, very curious to see what that's all about. We got Fastbender. Oh, it's coming out soon. It looks like. Oh, well, in, in another countries, November 10th for the U.S. So, yeah. yeah very Fastbender Tilda Swinton looks good. For sure. So we discussed a little bit of our relationship with true crime. Uh, when we discussed American Vandal, uh, Kevin, are there, is your area, like, does your area have any, like, super famous serial killers? Like, even not, the ones that, not like true crime experts know, but like, even the most lay person would know who they are. No, not really. Yeah, nothing really springs to mind. I'm sure there's, you know, something comes up, you know, I'm, I'm sort of by you know the the washington dc area so i'm sure there's gotta I mean, be some you're in there. washington you're near washington dc so you are clearly near at least 500 psychopaths right there is a there is the like the urban legend of the bunny man that i i heard of where it's like there's a certain like overpass tunnel that if you go through like it's called the bunny man bridge and there's like oh if you if you go through it you get attacked by a man wearing a rabbit costume who attacks people with an axe it seems more like urban legend than anything else, but that's the only thing that kind of comes to mind. Again, like I'm, I don't study or like look into serial killers and stuff. So I'm sure there's a million cases you could get by me that I just wouldn't have any idea about, but that's, I'm kind of coming up empty. So just by the nature of things, even if I wasn't somebody who followed true crime, there are three famous ones, one of whom is referenced in this very show. So, so the first one is Richard Speck, who is referenced in Mindhunter, uh, committed a pretty grisly act uh, in Joliet, Illinois, which is pretty close to Chicago. I would not consider it like Chicagoland area, but it's, it's definitely close enough to my area. Uh, John Wayne Gacy is another pretty famous one. I assume you've heard of John Wayne Gacy. Yes, of course. The clown, clown mask. Yep, that's that is what he is uh, perhaps most known for. And ninety miles north, so this is more Milwaukee than Chicago, but of course, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, who also recently had his own Netflix series as well. So uh, we are just a haven for serial killers, Kevin. Well, you know, you're you're a late bloomer. We'll see if the, if uh, you know we add one more to that list. Ouch. Anyway, so of course, Mindhunter comes at a time when. Anything and everything is being, you know, put into production. We're talking about peak television at this point, uh, 500 shows a year. So if David Fincher is interested in making a show, Netflix is going to give him all this money uh, to do that. So the first season premiered in about 2017 with the second season in 2019. And then 
Uh, unfortunately, of course, not a season three. Uh, but this uh, this show is very much a product of its time in both ways. In terms of, yes, we're going to give all this money and we're just going to create all this content, and then it becomes kind of victim of that because it costs so much money and the returns are kind of diminishing. So then it get gets canceled after two seasons, and this has very much been Netflix's mo. Uh, for the last couple of years is not giving shows a whole lot of room to grow. And that's why you're going to end up with a lot of one to two season shows. Yeah. It's interesting how like the model used to be like, they would throw a bunch of money at an original show, but it also, which is a a blessing in some ways, but the curse is if it doesn't produce viewership right away, then it goes away pretty quickly too. Because you got to cut your losses and move on. Not the best model, I think for business. What do I know? I've never been in business before, but I think that's why people are like, why does Netflix give up on shows so fast? I think that's a really big reason behind it is because they put a lot of, at least they used to anyways, put a lot of financial backing into it on the front end, hoping the back end would pay off. And it's, if they don't, then they, they cut their losses and and they move forward, which, which is a shame. I mean, that's, that is unfortunate when it comes to television and art and stories and stuff that you get a lot of these loose hanging shows, the stuff that's canceled too soon as, as some might say. So yeah, it stinks. It's it's unfortunate, but that is a that is a bad rep that that Netflix gets. Uh, I'll often watch, you know, they'll put out a video on their on their YouTube channel, like at the end of it's like end of July, they'll put a video like what's coming in August, and I'll watch to see if there's anything new up there. A lot of the comments are like either bring back this or or oh, I would watch this show looks great, but I know it's going to get canceled, uh, so I'm not going to watch it. And I that's a that's a they're getting the streaming reputation that Fox had about canceling shows. And it's hard to, to wash that stench off. Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's actually get into uh, the heart of the show. And we start uh, that the first episode is heavily focused around Jonathan Groff's character of Holden Ford, who is a special agent in the FBI behavioral science unit. Holden Ford is a fictionalized version of, of somebody who wrote a book kind of about this exploration of uh, developing uh, this this theory around uh, serial killers. And serial killers, it is a very recent phenomenon in, in terms of the name and the history, basically only taking us back to the mid-1970s as the majority of the first season takes place in 1977, uh, with the second season taking place during 1979 through 1981. But again, this first episode, I almost think you have to watch the first two episodes as kind of a a part one and a part two, because, again, the first episode is so heavily focused around Agent Holden Ford, and we don't really get introduced uh, to Bill Tench or Wendy Carr until a little bit later. Uh, we get we get a little bit of build tension the at the end of the first episode. We got kind of get Wendy in episodes two and three. So is the is one of the reasons that you had trouble with episode one because it was so heavily focused around Holden Ford and we weren't kind of getting to the meat of the action in terms of what is the purpose of this show? Yes, I think so. I think it was very much very heavily focused on him. And I like that character, but it is like I think once you get tension there and you see that dichotomy once once wendy joins the cast i think the show gets even better and i think once once they really settle into what that team looks like and they become a unit in the fbi the show gets much stronger so the setup just feels i think a little bit slowly 
I think it gives you a really great idea of the challenges that they're going to be put up against with just the predispositions of the FBI and the public in general about serial killers and stuff. I mean, there's a lot of really great stuff in that first episode, like when they go see Dog Day Afternoon uh, and some of the, the the meeting with him and Debbie. There's some really good dialogue there. Uh, him him <laughs> him getting the bong hit back at the house. It does a really great job of setting a lot up of who Holden is. So there is a lot of that, but there it is very heavily focused on him. I just don't think it's the strongest representation of the rest of the season is all. And, and you know, and just when they get to talk to the killers and stuff like that's some of the most intri- intriguing stuff, obviously. So I just don't think they they don't they they don't speed right into the most interesting stuff either, which is a benefit. But it is also like if you're somebody who I think is thinking about giving the show a shot, I can see some people watching episode one and being like, nah, I don't know. And then just moving on, unfortunately. So Holden is interested in exploring kind of delving into the minds of killers a little bit more, especially because he is a, he is a hostage negotiator uh, at the beginning of episode one. And he is involved in trying to negotiate with somebody at the beginning of the episode. And unfortunately really in the only moment of violence that, that takes place, there is, there's a lot of implied violence throughout the first season. Of course, there's a lot of discussion about the grisly acts that these people have committed, but really Kevin, this is the only straight up violent thing that happens in the entire series and I can't help but think like this is the way that they're trying to get people's attention by having somebody like blow their head off. And of course, there's also nudity in the first episode. So I can't help but think that this pilot in many ways is just trying to capture the attention of the viewer. Sure, I guess I could see that. But it is funny, like the, the head blowing off thing, like the CGI doesn't look so great. But it is. An, I mean, it's a very interesting scene. It is like a, a pretty attention grabbing way to start the show. But that is not. You don't see the, and I guess it does, it is good in showing like why Holden has moved from hostage negotiation into the unit he is, uh, where he served better as more of a, more of a curious mind, more of a, a scholar of this more than as a practical person, uh, which is, I think, which I think speaks to a lot of his character through the rest of the show too. Um, but yeah, you're right. I guess I didn't think about that. We really don't see that. We see some gruesome photos and hear some gruesome stories. But as far as seeing, we don't get much of that for the rest of yes, the show. As, uh, so Ke- I believe Kevin has mentioned in the past that he he does not have any tolerance for violence against uh, dogs specifically. Uh, so Kevin got a couple of warning text messages, and I hope that you were appreciative of those. I did. I looked away from my screen when they were coming. So yes, uh, I, I did warn Kevin, which as I, as I've said to him before, I will always I will always do that as a, as a courtesy to him. Uh, in the first episode, we also get to meet Debbie as well, and I know that this was a frustration point for you. It is a frustration point for me. I think whenever you have the the girlfriend or the wife of the main character, I think they are put in a very tough position because either they end up being a Debbie Downer. Or they end up being just the the wife on the phone supporting them. And I think there is an attempt throughout the series to give Debbie her own agency. She is trying to get a PhD. She is educated herself. She is able to talk with Holden about so many of these things that he is going through. But ultimately, for me, it feels like we either needed to cut Debbie altogether or we needed a lot more of them and for Debbie to become a more 
full-fledged character. I definitely agree with those points. And that is not taking away anything from Hannah Gross, who I think did a very good job with the character. Um, and she's a really great yang to to Holden's yin. He's, you know, he's a very button-up, stuffed shirt FBI agent while she's a little bit more loose, relaxed, hippie-ish, but still, you know, a, a scholar, so someone who can be mentally equal to him. What I think works for the couple, or at least my takeaway from it, is you have two people who are in these very psychological fields they're studying, and the failure of their relationship becomes when they spend too much time psychoanalyzing each other rather than just talking to each other. Um, like they're they're too academic in their approach to each other, and it just ends up not working. And I think that speaks a lot to Holden in general when it comes to a lot of and, and that's reflective in his work life, too. And I think that's why the relationship ultimately fails. But what I think the failure of that is the episode to episode feels off. I never know if they're on good terms, bad terms. It feels like one episode they're not on the best of terms and then I, they start the next episode and they're on good terms again. And I feel like there's either a lot of conversations I'm missing or just didn't happen and not a lot of connective tissue between episode to episode. So when you get stuff like, you know, her, him, him seeing her dropped off by another guy and you're supposed to be like, he's jealous. You're like, wait, why is he jealous? It seemed like they're on pretty solid ground right now. It, it, there's just an inconsistency for it that makes it very tough for me to have felt like this matters much at all. And I almost felt like in a lot of those scenes, especially in the later part of that series, I was like, can we get back to the FBI unit? Like, that's the really that's the real interesting stuff. Can we get bo- can we get back to the box factory, please? <laughs> yes. <laughs> when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's again it's if you're in a no man's land. I think when with what happens with a lot of these streaming shows is you will get characters, you will get specific relationships or even plot lines that you end up with. Okay, this either needs to be cut or this needs to be developed a lot more for me to have any sort of investment in it and i think that's part of the issue when you only have 10 episodes and granted these 10 episodes many of them are very close to the hour mark but it just it really feels like the debbie and holden relationship suffers because of it and i want to make sure that we do focus on debbie because i'm not sure how much we're going to do so for the rest of uh this this first part here so uh just in terms of their relationship I think it's. It, I think there are good elements to it. I really do appreciate Hannah Gross's performance as well. I don't want to take anything away from what she is doing, but I would agree with you that it is. Uh, it is definitely. There definitely come points, especially in those last couple episodes, when it's like, yeah, let's let's get back to them interviewing mass murders because I think that's that's kind of where the juice is. And the juice specifically comes with another important Ford relationship, and that, of course, is with Bill Tench. And Bill Tench is played uh, by Halt McElhaney, and uh, Holt McElhaney is a really good character actor. He is somebody who is uh, – he's a that guy, I would say. And if if Cancel Too Soon were to go on a perpetuity, I would definitely like to get one of his FX shows – uh, where he plays a retired boxer. Uh, it's a really good season of television. Unfortunately, a victim of being canceled too soon. But he is definitely the standout performance. He has also been in a lot of other things. But I am a huge fan of Holt McElhaney as Bill Tench. And uh, Kevin, I want you to give me your kind of your overall first impressions. Um, a couple things that really stand out to me about him is 
I think there was a want to perhaps be more progressive than some of his other co-workers, but I think there's also this this masculine portion of him that's holding him back from doing that. And all I'm going to say is I am not I have never smoked in my life. I will never smoke a cigarette. But that man really knows how to make smoking look cool. Oh, smoking does look cool. Like, I'm sorry. It's bad. But there's a lot of things where you're seeing like this looks cool as hell. Go watch a James Bond film, for example. So Bill Tench to me looks like if you took the try and save security guard from The Simpsons and made him a person haircut that sensibility a little more humor maybe to Bill Tench, but that's what I got from him. And I was like, it's it was a weird thing where I was like, I feel like I've seen him before, the Holt, Holt, Mc, Holt McAllenby? How do you say his name? I've pr- I pronounce it McElhaney. McElhaney, okay. Where I was like, I feel like I've seen him before, but I can't pinpoint him. Then I realized, looking at his Wikipedia, he was in Alien 3 and Fight Club. So he's got some Fincher, some Fincher cred going into this. But he is probably... I mean, he is, I think, what makes this show work in that you need him to be you you need him and Ford playing off of each other for this show to work. You sort of have this entrenched special agent, little bit of the, you know, getting too old for this shit attitude from him. But he's also very open minded. He sees value in what Holden has, but he also understands how bureaucracy works, how the FBI works. And. It's a case of Holden having these ideas, these things he wants to do. And Bill gives him a lot of rope to hang himself with, but he also has to really, you know, guide him in a lot of ways as as a newcomer uh, to what they're doing. And they're both sort of exploring this new unit together, but you have that dichotomy against each other to play with. And you get to see how a lot of what they're looking into the lives of these the the serial killers and their childhoods You could see that when he has his own child at home, that is sort of a, 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 you know, very quiet and all this. And I think there is something to sort of this dichotomy of you have this dad who's never home. He travels a lot for work, uh, maybe either gives tough love or is having trouble connecting with his child. And then you hear these awful stories about these serial killers and their mothers and things like that. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic to play off of, too. But Holt for me is sort of like the MVP of of this season, and I and I really like his and uh, and Jonathan Groff's relationship. I think they make for a really good pairing, and I think it's also what I like about it too is it doesn't get too dramatic. Like they have their tiffs and their spats and stuff, but it doesn't get overblown, and it feels like a very realistic professional relationship between the two of them. Yeah, and I think that that gets represented really well. And we'll get back to the relationship in just a second. But, Kevin, I have to point this out. I have to tell you, Holt McElhaney is going to play Fritz Von Erich in the upcoming Von Erich's biopic that's coming out at the end of the year. Oh, my God, that's the best news of all time. What a great pick. Uh, it, it doesn't get any better. Uh, Zach Efron and Jeremy Allen White playing the two of the main Von Erichs is really good. But Holt McElhaney is Fritz. I... Even if the movie is bad, Holt McElhaney as Fritz gets me in the door. Oh, God. Yeah, the, the cast is incredible because you also have Lily James, Mara Tierney. Uh, wow, that's – man, you got me even more excited for this movie. It's going to – I'm going to have to have a bro date to go see it. I'm going to cry. That's, that's all it's going to come down to. I mean, it's going to be very – up. Uh, what could possibly – it's the Von Erichs that has to be uplifting, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway. You, know, that's, you know what? If – 
if they fast forward about another decade or so and we got the them exploring the wrestling territories, now we'd have a show. This show would still be going, is what I'm saying. I mean, this show could still be going because there, there's still serial killers out there. I'm not sure if there's many, but man, oh man. Um, so we do get to see their relationship play out. Uh, they really do have a great back and forth in terms of when they're interviewing people, but originally. Uh, what they're doing is, is that they're going around police departments and they're giving uh, these philosophies, these dog, I would say like a dog and pony show of introducing FBI concepts to the uh, to poli- local police stations. And one of my favorite bits is when they are in their car and they're waiting for a police officer to approach them with a case. That is that is some of my favorite stuff, because that's when you see those two on the same wavelength. And I. I, I just love when they're waiting in the car for some for them to for to be approached, and even when the, the the first scene in Iowa, really getting to see them play off of each other, and like Holden maybe goes a little bit too far in the way that he describes Charles Manson as possibly a victim, and Tench is like having to pull him off, and uh, like literally kind of like with the cane like pulling him off the stage, the it just. That scene in Iowa uh, was really great. And then the follow-up when they're in Sacramento and they get approached by the cop. That that really gives you – I think that's when the show really starts cooking. And I – yes, and I think that explains a lot of Holden where I talk about him being like an academic where he sees things in the way he does. And he's like, well, if I see it this way and I just explain it to people, they will clearly see it the same way I do. And and and, and it's uh, – uh, Tench who has to be like, nope, you are you are really working up current against these people and it, knowing your audience and all those things. And I think that's again, it's great. It's great seeing the relationship. And it, one of my favorite things about the show is seeing them question the serial killers and the looks they give each other and the sort of the either the looks of what the heck are you doing or the look of, ah, I see what you're doing. And they and they go along with it. That to me is some of the best stuff in the show. Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, those are the action scenes. Like, this is not a show that has action, but I, I would say that those scenes with the serial killers are the equivalent of when Sylvester Stallone is about to go through a hallway full of bad guys, or, or there, there's going to be like a superhero action scene. Like that is that to me is the equivalent that that tit for tat to me. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna get into those conversations in just a minute. But something that I really appreciate is that they're sort of developing the theories, but also kind of putting them into practice right away. I really like the fact that they go into Sacramento and they kind of solve the case using these theories. I think it does a great job of kind of setting it up that, yes, there is value to this. It's certainly not perfect, but I think giving them an early win was really important to establish that this is important. No doubt. I think that you need that early win. You can't just be all losses and all that because then what are we what are we going for? You need those early wins to to have us carry through and keep their spirits high and show them like, hey, we're on to something. This is it, it's something for them to get excited about and feel good about uh, moving forward. Or, yeah, I don't think it works without that early victory. And I think that when you're trying to establish a show like this, you know, I think you need to have that. But I think you also need to have the right first killer because obviously you're setting up, okay, we're going to be interviewing a series of serial killers. And I think if you introduce, like, if you put Charles Manson in episode two, 
Like that is like nobody else is going to compare to Charles Manson, both in terms of kind of his reputation, but also in terms of like, this is the main event. This is the guy that you bring in at the end of the road, not at the beginning. I think the person that they chose, they chose Edmund Kemper, who is a real person. And I know that you, you have a lot of things to say, so I'll let you say them just in a moment, but Edmund Kemper, Kemper is to me the the perfect first killer because he comes across very differently than I think you would stereotype like you would stereotype a serial killer more like what we see out of like a Richard Speck where he's kind of just Looney Tunes he's just saying all of these things he's being very argumentative he's being very aggressive Edmund Kemper is the complete opposite he's very talkative he's very intelligent he comes across as being very reasonable and for all those reasons, I think Edmund Kemper was the perfect first killer to talk to in, and I don't know, you know, this is a fictional representation of things that actually happened. So I'm not sure, was this the first person that I actually talked to? Probably not. But does it, for me, for this show to work, I think you have to establish a rapport with tension and with tension Holden, and you also have to have a very good first person and to me, Edmund Kemper was that. Cameron Britton deserves all the awards for his performance in this show. I was blown away by his performance in this show. I, I like it's it was also a great pick, not only because of all the things you said, which are true, but also because he's a great example is Ed Kemper of. Not every serial killer you meet is this out of control psychopath who's screaming and yelling and wants to kill everybody. It is a perfect example of someone who seems mild mannered, well spoken, deliberate, uh, inquisitive. All these very positive attributes could do such a horrible, awful thing. And this is a and it's a perfect example of why Holden is so interested in doing this because here's this person on the outside seems like. You know, a sweetheart of a person who lives in your neighborhood, but is really deep down a monster. Why is that? What makes him tick? What led him to these things? He's a great example of everyone can write him off as a monster. But no, there's there's more depth to them as people for them to look into to gain valuable insight to for future cases. Um, and you see a lot of that in the scenes with him and Ed. And I think these are the scenes that really hooked me in, really captivated me. And even the episode felt a little bit slow at times or felt a little long. I was always I was never bored by by when Ed Kemper was on the screen. I got I was looking forward to more scenes with him together. And I was excited to see how you first see him and Holden by themselves. Then they bring in him and Tench together to talk and how that dynamic would change. And then, of course, you know, the payoff in the final episode with him was was a was a wonderful thing. And how I how he categorized his relationship with them. All of that was very good. And I think he was a great case study, too, to play off of, because I think you need someone like that, too, to develop. They needed someone like that to develop how they were going to go forward with these. You know, someone like like Charles Manson, if you get a chance to talk to Charles Manson, it's going to be one chance and you want to make sure you make the most of it. So them going through multiple different serial killers first to develop a game plan, develop a line of questioning their methods before going to talk to him. Seems obvious, like you want to make sure you're at your best when you're going to go speak to someone like him, that you're not going to waste that one chance you get. So I think for that reason, too, it was a good reason not to do that, too. But, you know, I go on and on and on about 
how it's it's a shame that he was only nominated for a primetime Emmy and didn't win. Uh, but Cameron Britton is somebody who I hope he got all of he, he should get more work after this performance. He was so impressive. Yeah, he was very impressive. And Ed Kemper is, in fact, he legit. He is six nine. Uh, I think they did a good job at the height. Uh, Cameron Britton is only six four and a half, but I didn't really notice a difference. So that's good work by them. Uh, did you watch any real footage of Edmund Kemper speaking? No. I would reckon, like, I'm not saying watch, there's like a 22-minute clip. I'm not saying watch the whole 22 minutes. Watch the first minute or so, and I think you will, I think you will be surprised, uh, is all I'll say, in terms of just comparing his performance to the real Edmund Kemper, the voice, the mannerisms. I would definitely recommend that. It doesn't surprise me that he would put in that amount of effort and work to to get that right. I mean, just by... Just by the way he does it, it seems like there was a lot of de- a lot of studying and deliberate choices made by by him to nail this character. So Holden kind of goes in by himself to talk to him at first because they're kind of going back and forth uh, in San Francisco and Sacramento. Uh, Tench really just wants to play golf, and that's what he does. But there comes a point when Tench decides, all right, I will go in and talk. And I think he also becomes pretty intrigued and interested in what Holden is doing. Uh, but what they are what they're doing is they're kind of doing it off the books. And uh, they raise the ire of their boss, uh, Bill Shepard. And Shepard becomes very infuriated to learn uh, that Ford and Tencher are interviewing Kemper. Um, but he eventually decides that he is going to humor them and give them time to continue the project in the basement of the FBI at Quantico, which is pretty great. And uh, you get to see how poor this basement is uh, the first time you see it. I I do have to give them credit. I don't know if there is interior design in any of their backgrounds, but uh, that office looks way better in future episodes than what we see in the second episode. Well, of course, they get funding and they can actually build out some office spaces and stuff when it seems like it's going to be this tried and true thing that's going to that's going to go forward. But it also, I definitely think, speaks to bureaucracy, the the very nice offices the people at the top get and then the the the, the terrible quarters the, in the basement, no windows, no nothing that this new this new unit gets that they don't have the full interest of until suddenly they get funding. And now it's very interesting. But I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, you are a little bit, but that's OK. Uh, we're, we're not really going to go episode by episode. We're just going to more kind of talk about big story beats and things like that, because it is 10 episodes and we're not we are certainly not going to be comprehensive. We, of course, have to get into episode three for a f- very specific reason, because we are introduced to Dr. Wendy Carr, a social sciences professor in Boston, Massachusetts. If they're going to continue their work and continue their study, they need that academic credibility, and that is what she is there for. Um, They are trying to meet with another uh, suspect, um, and they're denied. So this is also the episode where they kind of solve the case that is in Sacramento and gives them that that good early victory. So that's what a lot of the episode is based around. Uh, We also get Ford recommending the removal of certain words from the FBI's list of deviants of deviant words and i think it's uh it's it's really fascinating because i can't help but think about like in the first episode they're watching dog day afternoon and there is a there's a generational conflict that i think gets uns that is unspoken here if you look at holden holden is i think what did he say 29 
That sounds right. Yes. So he's 29. It's 1977. He presumably did not go to Vietnam because he went to college, I would say. So he doesn't really have, like, he hasn't been overseas. He did not fight in either World War II or the Korean War. I would I would bet that a lot of the people that he works with in four are veterans of one of those two wars. And I can't help but think just the way their attitudes are, the way that Shepard sometimes is can be a very condescending to Holden, uh, Tetch's attitude at times, especially coming across as being, you know, very masculine, sometimes being a little bit more black and white in terms of talking about how evil the serial killers are. I can't help but think that that generational divide is kind of unspoken, but such an important aspect of the show. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, first of all, I'll jump back to what you said about the words. I thought it was very funny in that episode one when they are leaving Dog Day Afternoon and talking about those words. And then she says so many of them when they're having sex. I thought that was very funny. Uh, And then in that same episode, I think something else you see, too, that like to me, very emblematic of the 70s and sort of like not even necessarily that divide, but sort of like the relaxed nature of is when they're hanging by poolside and like Holden's enjoying a drink and a cigar and they're kind of debriefing and stuff. And you're like, ah, that looks just like to me, that just looks like a good time. The two of them, you know, laying back and do each other. But again, I think what you mentioned about the him, you know, going to these places and getting a golf game in on his day off and stuff while Ford does this too, I think is also the difference between young gun looking to prove himself versus entrenched bureaucrat who uh, the system is sort of, I don't say beating him down a little bit, but he kind of understands that, Hey, there's a lot of stuff I have to work against. So I'm just going to go to this nice town, enjoy my golf game. And uh, that's, that's what it is. And I think you needed somebody like Ford to that, that youth energy of Ford to sort of, uh, invigorate tench and in this too. So the generate, I think you're totally right in the generational divide too. And I think again, that, that just makes the, 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 the interplay between the two of them so good. And I really like that Wendy is there too, because again, I've talked about how Holden tries to take like an academic approach, but obviously that he's like a faux academic, whereas Wendy's here to try to create, uh, actual science to this an actual template so they can have, you know, all these cases, comparison points and all that to create some sort of conclusion. And, you know, it's going to take many years and this and that and all this where Holden goes off the cuff a bit. Uh, He he wants immediate answers. He thinks, you know, he uses his latest case to kind of go into the next one. And while she's looking at this from a scientific perspective of no, these need to be as similar as possible. So we have something to create data with and draw conclusions from and that all works out that dynamic is also very fun too but yeah so as as we move on it seems to me like in the first couple episodes they're kind of teasing some sexual tension between dr carr and holden i don't know if you necessarily got that impression i I did obviously that is something that goes away uh once it is revealed kind of uh, who Dr. Carr is with and uh, her persuasion, so to speak, which we'll get to. But especially in episode four, there, there's this moment when uh, he invites Debbie and Dr. Carr out uh, for dinner. And I couldn't help but think, like, are they trying to set these two up? And uh, I was wondering what your impressions were that because it just it felt like a terrible idea that I'm very glad that they shifted away from. I do think they wanted you to think that. And I think they wanted 
I think they wanted to plant that seed in Debbie's head for when she kind of cheats on him later, where it's like she's getting jealous of Wendy. And, you know, obviously Holden spends a lot of time at work uh, and he's in, you know, fast day with his work. And it seems like maybe there's threatened by that because she's sort of the older, more intellectual female in this relationship who's able to discuss better with Holden than Debbie is and all that. So it's like, there's a lot of things that she can offer that Debbie can't. And I think you're supposed to get some jealousy off of that, but it didn't really work for me. I get what they were going for, but yeah, I'm glad they sort of dropped it fairly quickly. So they also Ford and Tent interview another serial killer, uh, Monty Russell, uh, who is from Virginia. I don't know what part of Virginia, but he is somebody who is a little bit more, I would say, behaves more stereotypically like somebody who you would expect to be a serial killer, just in terms of how aggressive he is, the way that he talks to the two of them. And he also talks about the way that he treated his victims. And ultimately, uh, he reveals the same hate for his mother as Kemper. So kind of coming back to mommy issues, which uh, kind of a psychological stereotype, but very clearly going for something. And I think they're starting to to put some things together. Also, what's going on is that they are starting to investigate uh, a situation where a young woman was killed uh, in Altoona, Pennsylvania. So we get a couple of episodes of them kind of trying to figure this case out and uh, the payoff to that, which we'll get to. But uh, did you have any impressions of Monty Russell? Probably a bit of a come down from uh, Ed Kemper, but I think an important voice just to differentiate Kemper and just something that I really appreciate is that every every person, every killer they talk to feels very specific, very different. The performances are all unique. And that's also something that I appreciate so that you can't fall into this the stereotype of, oh, it's just it's another serial killer who's just, you know, twisting his evil mustache and behaving in a certain way. But they're very clearly trying to differentiate. And I appreciate that because I think it also makes those individual scenes compelling because Ford and Tench have to take different approaches depending on who they're talking to. Yeah, it was Monty Russell the one who wanted the big red soda. Yep, and he did get it eventually. Yeah, I do like that they talked to Agent Carr about that. And they're like, you know, she's like, just, you know, go with, uh, you know, humor them. See what you can get out of them from that. And they do, and it, and it pays off. Uh, it show, I think it's, it kind of shows respect for that person. And I don't know what part of Virginia he was in. I think they went to the Richmond prison, which would be about 80 miles from Quantico, I'd say, maybe 70 uh, so, you know, a day's drive to and back from them. So not not the not the hardest drive in the world. But, yes, I think you have to show that, like, not only is everyone going to be different, but I think relatively speaking, I think them talking to to Ed was to, talking to Ed Kemper was like relatively easy. And this was not so easy. There had to be a lot more uh, finessing to get what they wanted from him to make it not a not a useless trip. All right. So. What's what hap- what's happening in Altoona is it's pretty it's pr- pretty harrowing stuff. And, you know, I have purposely tried to avoid getting into a lot of the details in some of these cases, because th- as 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 compelling as this show is, I would also say this is a hard show to sit down and be like, I'm going to watch 10 episodes of Mindhunter because they do get into details. They they do get deep into this. And this is not just a a simplistic show, I think. You could do the cable version of the show that could feel very exploitative 
and where they're just very focused on uh, the minute details. And that's not to say they don't get into them, but I think there is this this academic bend that they're constantly going for that that makes it more nuanced. But this is this is a very hard show to watch more than I would say two episodes in a row. Agreed. I watched about two a night and then sometimes I would take a break in between the episodes. Like I'd watch one right after dinner, go do something else for an hour, hour and a half and then watch another episode. It is not a light watch and not a not a uh, uh, something I would I would recommend binge watching at all. So we find out what happened in Altoona and basically there's there's kind of three people uh, that are involved in the murder uh, there's also a possible sexual assault uh, that takes place as well so and then they're kind of getting into the details of who did what and using language to, de- to kind of decipher uh, how you know the victim's sister was involved the fiance the potential love interest. So there's a lot of nuanced conversation going on and Holden and Tench become very interested in like really getting into these details and trying to figure out like who committed the act, how were they involved? But the district attorney of Altoona is not nearly as interested and clearly goes for the, the simplest answer uh, where he sends, you know, the idea is that Frank Genderman, uh, the brother-in-law is pro- probably the one who may have done the deed uh, but because he is the one who kind of spoke up. He ultimately is going to just go to a mental institution, perhaps for as little as five years. And the person that he may have manipulated is possibly going to get either life in in jail or possibly even the death penalty. So I think it was good to show them succeeding in Sacramento. And to an extent, they also succeed in Pennsylvania. But I would say it's a hollow victory, uh, given the decision by the district attorney to pursue uh, a case against uh, one person and not go as hardcore against the other two. So I really like that, that they're finding success, but that they are constantly butting up against the bureaucracy and these institutions that are much more interested in finding the easiest answer as opposed to finding out what really happened. For sure. It was really great too, because it shows that not all of these solutions are going to be as cut and dry as you think. And even when they go on information they have from their previous cases and they try to apply it for a different case, not everything is a one size fits all situation. Yes. You can use those previous studies to sort of guide you as you go through this, but you're not going to get many situations where three people are involved with the death of one person and you see this unravel and it almost this is also like you get this later with the the teacher and the other school but it's like they're getting pretty deep into local local level police work which obviously I think the FBI is like that is not what we do even though there was immense value in them going into this case discovering the truth and maybe what the case what these people got isn't what they wanted they at least got the the satisfaction of solving the case and, you know, the system disappointing them. And that is what it is. But I do like the difference of even though they did good work, you see the FBI people being like, this is not what we do. This is too small for us uh, and having to fight against that and them having to pick their battles or defy what their orders and say, no, this is something that is worth our time because not only does it not only is it beneficial for them to solve these cases, but it's also beneficial for the work that they're doing with with getting into the minds of these people. So 
I like seeing all that stuff. I like see them butting against the FBI agent who wants to see the big picture of what they do versus the 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 hard work they're doing on the ground floor and getting into these local politics of like Altoona, Pennsylvania of all places, you know. So I like seeing all that stuff and the dynamic of the, you know, the the sheriff of the town wants to think the best of the people in his town, the people he grew up going to church with, seeing at the grocery store, going to school with and having to see the dark, the dark side of his town. So all of that stuff seeing played out, I thought was all extremely interesting and it made for a really good, solid couple of episodes. I would agree. I think it's also a great way to kind of explore the country and kind of the differences in, in tone, in weather. It gives us a chance to kind of explore these places as well. Uh, Altoona does not seem like a very desirable place to live. No, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's a very smallish town that it's like in the middle. If you're taking the Pennsylvania Turnpike, you come across and maybe you'll stop to grab some to eat. But as a place to stay, yeah, maybe not so much. Uh, so we get to, in episode six, uh, we explored Dr. Carr's uh, personal life a little bit as uh, she is going back and forth uh, from Quantico and Boston. Uh, she is a, she is offered a full-time consulting position at the FBI, and she goes home to her partner, who is a woman, shockingly enough, and, or at least I think that's kind of what the show is going for. And not not to be a stereotype, but this wasn't the craziest surprise in the world to me. Yeah, I I I, I had forgotten this, but I, I was like, oh, yeah, this this definitely makes sense. And uh, Dr. Carr goes back to her partner to decide whether she is going to accept this offer. Uh, her partner warns her about her career and having to stay closeted. And Carr ultimately did like she has one conversation at dinner that I guess gets a little too academic for her or something and she just decides in that moment to leave for Virginia anyway and I have to say that Dr. Carr gets the very short end of the stick in this case because we don't know how long she has been uh, with her partner like we never hear about that like clearly they're in some sort of living situation or very comfortable with each other in a professional setting so clearly they've been together for some time it really feels like they just wanted to get Carr in that FBI office as soon as possible, get her out of Boston. And I just feel like this gets very short shift because we don't really get like, what is Dr. Carr's intentions here? I think we get it in the, in the ensuing episodes. It really feels like that's when she finds herself as a character a little bit more because she's in the episodes more just by being in the office. But in terms of the the way that episode six plays out in her case, specifically, it just feels like we're going through things a little bit too quickly. We find out she's with her partner. She breaks up with her like one scene later. There's like no argument. There's no discussion. She's just looking for an apartment or a condo in Virginia. And it's it's just unfortunate because there are times when it feels like, well, instead of the Debbie Holden relationship, we could have been spending more time with Dr. Carr building up to her leaving uh, away from Boston instead of just doing it all in one episode. I completely agree with that. And I think there is something too where like, yeah, she, she's probably doing really good, important research at her college. And, but I also think you think of it like, okay, so that gets published in journals, other academics or scholars read it. And she's seen as a big name in her field. But man, the FBI doing work for them, like you have a real chance to do 
something important on such a grander scale. And I think that's something that they could have emphasized more a little bit too, when she's trying to decide what to do is just like, man, think about the impact that what you're doing here could have versus just, you know, and this isn't to, you know, say anything bad about what, what obviously, you know, teachers and faculty and all that are doing. The research is incredibly important, but for the FBI, I mean, this is, this is huge uh, for her to get involved with this. So, I would have liked to see a little bit more of that setup too, but you're right. We're just sort of thrown into this like entrenched relationship that we're, 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 we're more told than shown about like, you get a little bit of that. Like, yeah, we get there's some strain here, but it's like, man, is you, is, is her partner always this hard on her about stuff like this? Or, you know, what's really going on here? Does she just not want to move? Is she just, I don't know. You could have seen so much more of this and I feel like it would have been, you're right. It just feels like we're rushing to get her to to Quantico out of Boston, and it just falls flat. And on another Dr. Corona, while we're talking about her, do you have any feelings on when she is seemingly feeding this cat, and I guess the cat dies? That was that was also very strange. I mean, I, I don't know what they were going for there. It seemed to be some sort of like uh like metaphor for like her reaching out and trying to show compassion or something and it kind of goes awry i don't know it was part of me was like is this going to be a fincher weird thing where like there's some like horror monster living in the vents <laughs> like are they really going to like give me a surreal i'm not sure it would become a very different show shockingly this is actually a prequel to alien 3 <laughs> it's like a real surrealist tint on the world but no I, yeah there is doesn't seem to really be this this payoff to it um, it's, but it, it does seem like maybe it's her outlet for some compassion or some, uh, some while well, she's, cause when she moves in, they talk about the, the woman who's showing her the apartment mentions like, oh, they're singles mixers and stuff like this. And she mentions she's gonna be working long days. And that turns out to be true. Not to mention, I think with her being, you know, gay in the seventies, it's still harder for her to be open about that stuff. But I also took it as she's not going to have that many opportunities to be, you know, compassionate or show, or, uh, you know, emotion, not to mention when she goes to work, you have to be very practical in your approach to these people. So to me, this is like her way of showing some sort of compassion for another creature, even if she never gets to see it. Her satisfaction is going down, seeing the empty tuna can and replacing it with another one for this, what we believe to be a cat there. And then on another day, it's just filled with ants and game over. I don't know if the cat dies or just it went away to somewhere else or whatever, but yeah, I don't know what metaphor they're going for there, but that was sort of my takeaway from it is the, the small outlet she has to be compassionate to somebody. That's that's where it was. Uh, I wish I thought about this more because I would have loved to seen how her demeanor changes once she gets it and it's filled with ants versus the cat having have eaten it. I, uh, I will say, I don't know if this is a moment before she feeds the cat, but there is a point when she's pouring wine into a glass and you see her make a face and then she pours more wine into the glass. I really wanted a gif of that because that is a perfect distillation of probably having to deal with all the, imagine having to deal with Holden intent on a daily basis. You know what, Dr. Carr, you pour yourself more wine. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a lot of masculine energy to take in and officers like, fuck this and go home and you drink that wine. Uh, so we get, so the final four episodes are really about Holden uh, slowly breaking down and eventually coming to a point when he has a panic attack at the end of episode 10. And we get to, we see him starting to cross a line uh, very subtly, but it's, it, it happens a little bit in the first six episodes, but in episode seven, 
Uh, we get him buying a pair of extra large women's shoes uh, for the serial killers they are I- interviewing at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. Uh, Jerry Brudos. And Brudos is also very aggressive, but very different in his approach. And uh, there's a lot of discussion about cross-dressing and things of that nature. I think the show handsel- handles that about as sensitively as you can. And especially given the show does take place in 1977, I think they do a good job overall of handling this. And yeah, we uh, we see Holden buying these shoes and uh, the possibility that, you know, maybe Holden is uh, becoming perhaps a little bit too invested in what in the work he's doing for the FBI. For You know what made me think of this uh, with, you know, we talk about the cross dressing and the sensitivity and stuff, but like. Man, Dog Day Afternoon being about, you know, a man trying to rob money for his boyfriend to get a sex operation changed. What of a ahead of its time concept that is? I mean, some people would say it's still ahead of its time in 2023. No doubt. But I kind of thought about that the same thing, too, when we get to this conversation. But I do like this just showing that Holden's going, uh, you know, thinking outside the box to get more information. You know, you saw that a little bit with just giving a soda or a slice of pizza or something to to help get on the good side, sort of break down the tension between you and the person. But what if you gave into their, you know, their gave into them normally, you know, presenting him with this pair of women's shoes. And that becomes the language he uses going forward. Every, everybody has their shoes. The thing that catches them off guard, that thing that they, that, uh, that, that, that's sort of like their rosebud in a certain way. And it, and he finds that to be very helpful in this interview. And that's what he thinks about going into their other case these last uh, episodes and it gets him to be more results based and getting what he wants. And I think, I think Debbie does a good job of calling out on it saying like, you're kind of coercing these people rather than, you know, persuading them and sort of getting the answers you want versus trying to get to get, get the real answers out of people. Uh, and I think that's that, I think that does play a role. And I think, again, you see him stopping the recording of the tape so he can pursue one of the people in a certain way. And yeah, he's going down this, this path of getting answers that I think is frowned upon by a lot of people. Um, but I think for his mind, the, the ends justify the means. And I don't think he knows he's playing with fire until uh, what happens with the panic attack in episode 10. And I'm glad that, that there is some consequence to what he's doing. And I don't mean that in the terms of like his reprimanded at work. I mean, actual psychological damage to him going too far with these serial killers catches up to him in episode 10. I'm glad it isn't just him getting away with it and getting these answers without some sort of penalty. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think episode seven also uh, is a big moment because uh, Tench's son, Brian, who is having some perhaps developmental issues. Um, and this really comes to the forefront in this episode as he discovers a crime scene photo of one of the victims. And uh, Tench has a number of conversations with his wife about kind of his work and kind of reveals just how, how dark it is. And I don't know about you, but after this episode, it really feels like Tench kind of secedes to the background. And a lot of what's going on here is Holden in the field. And we're really with Holden for a lot of the last three episodes. And I'm not going to lie. I kind of missed their dynamic in those episodes for that reason. I mean, yes, they, they, they do go to Joliet together, but it just, it feels like Tench is not as involved 
And I'm sure that this this scene is kind of meant to explain why. I think that's partially true. And first of all, I loved this scene. I love that Bill opened up to her and I like that it didn't lead to this big fight or anything, but her his his wife feeling for him and, you know, you know, from behind, giving him a big hug and all this stuff. And you got to see like Bill sort of like have this big exhale of all these emotions coming out of him. Uh, I love that scene. Uh, I liked it a lot. And I think one of my favorite Bill scenes, though, even if he isn't as active in some of these scenes with the killers, is the bar scene where Holden has, you know, they're having a celebratory drinks as they bust the the hedge trimmer who killed the the girl, the majorette girl. And he's kind of just like letting Holden talk and Holden sort of being a little bit cocky about what he's saying and maybe speaking a bit out of terms about who they've spoken to and all this stuff. And like Holden knows it's a bad idea, but I think. It's one of those things where if you're a mentor to somebody, you kind of need to let them fail or let them do this to, you know, they need to learn from from doing you, instead of him preventing him from saying anything. He kind of lets him go and it, you know, it gets into the press and it backfires on him and it's not a good thing for the FBI. But I think I don't know that that tension necessarily knew it was going to lead to that, but he sort of lets him talk and talk and talk. Uh, and I think. To me, when I see the look on Bill's face and he's kind of like rolling his eyes or shows I look like, eh, I probably shouldn't be saying this stuff. I think he's my read of it was that he was letting him go and 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 to on on purpose to to let him learn from his from his mistake. I I would agree. So because this is a this is a team and they need kind of more players for that team to do transcription uh, to get interviews. Uh, the uh, the BSU, the Behavioral Science Unit, they hire Greg Smith. Kevin, this, this Greg fucker. Smith. Go ahead. Give me all give me all your thoughts. Uh, well, okay. So Greg Smith was basically deputized by the FBI director. So already red flag. The FBI director is putting this person here. And and I think their immediate read of he's, you know, he he's he's a canary in the coal mine, right? He's gonna be a narc to to the FBI director. I think that's their read on it. I mean, and, he literally looks like a narc. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, they talk to him and he has a very pious person, but not, up, you know, stuck up, you know, he's very much like, you know, I can be, you know, objective at work and stuff. And, uh, I like that Holden tries to scare him off with like, but I think it's also important for him to see the reality. So it's like scaring him off, but also showing him like, this is the really gruesome stuff we're going to be getting into and him looking at the case. And I think you see him talking to the principal of the school and he has kids and he can sort of see that side of the story. And uh, I don't know that Holden agrees with him. He doesn't like that. He kind of not necessarily took his side, but could understand a little bit more. And he's you see him learning from the FBI as they go forward. I I don't like I understand why he narked them out when he did. There's a part where uh, there's something that Holden said that he asks him to redact from the tapes and the transcriptions. Then ultimately he sends in the correct tape when it looks like they're going to get in trouble for it. I understand that he wants to clear his conscience and he thinks it's the right thing to do, but fuck him for being a narc on his own team. But that's what he's there to do. You know, I think he was, he showed he was exactly who they thought he was. And yeah, yeah, I would agree. If Greg Smith had told him that he did it, would that have changed your opinion of him? I, yes, it would have, because I think what he did was a very cowardly move, uh, he, you know, I, he because he sent him with autonomy and all that stuff. But I think he should have gone to the FBI agent and be like, hey, uh, 
I you know, and and I do like that scene when the FBI director comes down there and he's like, "Don't fucking tell me that whole you know why did you do that?" And then he's like, "Don't tell me, don't fucking tell me that Holden told you to to do it, right?" Like I like that he says like, "Don't pass the buck for for the blame." But I think if he had just you know manned up and went to the FBI director and been like, "Hey, I can't do this. I can't you know this is weighing on my conscience. This is what was edited out." Maybe goes to Wendy too because I think she was kept out of the loop and then goes and tells. Holding this, he goes, hey, I just want to let you know I couldn't live with myself with this information, so I presented to them. I understand if that makes you mad, but I had to do what I thought was right. I would have respected him much more than him doing it behind their backs, for sure. Yeah, and and Holden's behavior is definitely an issue, there's no doubt, but I think Greg Smith kind of crosses his own line in a lot of ways, and the way that Ford crosses the line in Episode 8 is basically by becoming involved um, in something that I don't... I, I would not think is in anywhere close to the FBI's uh, purview as he goes to speak at an elementary school, uh, talks to a teacher, and the teacher is concerned with the principal's behavior as he is uh, tickling the feet of of the of the kids at his school. And look, that's it's borderline behavior. Definitely would not be like in 2023. Not even close. I mean, he would he would have been let go far earlier. But 1977, I would say borderline problems at this point. And and Holden involves himself. And it's it's very it is uh, it's very unkosher for him to just become involved in something like this. And he also gets he drags Greg into it as well. Tension wants absolutely nothing to do with this. And episode eight is also pretty dramatic because. Uh, Debbie invites form to De- Debbie invites Ford uh, to an event that she is a part of. Uh, he catches her in a compromising position uh, with Patrick, who we never meet, but y- you could probably picture Patrick in your head. Were you picturing Patrick in your head whenever he was mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you're basically like, you know, OK, what is the antithesis of Holden? That's Patrick. Absolutely. And, uh, and Ford angrily leaves and we'll kind of get into how that plays in the next episode in a, in a minute. Um, and in the end, he receives a phone call from the school superintendent informing him that the principal will be let go. So uh, I don't know. For me, I, I brought this up to Kevin. And the only reason that people would know outside of Chicago, who J.J. Bittenbinder is, is because of John Mulaney. Like, that's the only reason. But uh, do you know what special it was where he talked about him? It would have been... I will... I'm going to look it up now. I I will 100% know what it is because I've watched him, like, all... So, J.J. Bittenbinder is a police officer who kind of would go around to schools and kind of scare kids like with some of the way, with the way he talked. If you look him up on YouTube, you will find some videos of him. I'm sure speaking. And, uh, he it's actually kid, kid, sorry, kid gorgeous is the name of the special kid gorgeous at radio city. Uh, yeah, that's John, John it's from 2018. John Lee talks about JJ Bittenbinder. You can also just find that bit on YouTube. I believe it's worth your time. And and I couldn't help but think about this because, you know, Bittenbinder eh, kind of crosses the line. And he actually came to my school uh, when I was in first or second grade. So that's that's what all this this brought up. And you have Ford, an FBI agent, kind of coming to talk about behaviors and whatnot. And it's very it's a little it's very awkward. But of course, the kids are really excited to see the badge. That was so funny when he's just like, just flash your badge and I'll be fine. I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, I think it's also like 
very interesting that there really wasn't any discussion of a nuanced approach of a solution to this, like kids opting out of this or parents having choice in this. Or or they talked about that when the parents and the, the principals were very steadfast that, you know, you have no say in, in this stuff and, you know, the relationship with me and your kid or whatever. And you're just like, whoa, that's pretty far. Um, but I also think it's it's neat to see that Holden had this opinion about like, this is wrong. We need to let him go. And you talk to different teachers and they have different feelings about it. You talk to some of the parents and they have feelings about it, too. But it's like, again, you like, you know, he talks to the police and they're like, he didn't commit a crime. Like, what are we supposed to do? And I think he gets too caught up with like they're not listening to the teachers and the parents and stuff. And like you said, uh, there's like, why are we even the FBI? Why is the FBI even involved in this? This is a small school issue that isn't even a crime. Like, why are we talking about this? And, you know, him pointing his nose ultimately gets the principal's dismissal, whether it's deserved or not. You know, I think is in the eye of the beholder. I think, again, in 2023 eyes, you're like, holy crap, this guy needs to go yesterday. But that is there is a much there was a much more nuanced discussion about like why is he doing this what is this for da, da, da. and like to me I hear him talk about the story about the kid in the nurse's office and you know him doing the, this little piggy thing and like I think that was you know my opinion I'm like okay I could see the side of it where this has benefits to the kid uh, but doing it every time a kid goes to your office and giving him a nickel you're like what's that about um, so yeah very particularly strange but I think it's interesting that there wasn't. Nobody was able to say, like, we can come to a more nuanced solution than either just like it stays and it goes, you know, either the principal stays and this behavior goes on unchecked or we fire him. And there is no in between. But again, this goes to show you just him getting too involved in the local area stuff and sort of, again, going. Now he's starting to psychoanalyze everybody with the behaviors of serial killers, not just looking at serial killers and going from there. So I think that's it's a great way to show how Ford's discussions with the serial killer has colored his perspective of everybody. Quentin Tarantino would definitely not see a problem with anything that's happening in episode eight. I noticed you did not answer my text where I asked how many students feet you've tickled. Uh, the answer would be zero because no, Kevin, just no, especially because they're adults. That, that to me is the funniest thing. It's just like imagining like a professor in like college and he has students feel, let me touch your feet. Wait, what? Um, yeah, I don't, I I mean, it's certainly what happened on my end, but, uh, you can only imagine professors and their students that it has, uh, it has happened. That's all I'll say. So episode nine is when they go to Juliet and they meet Richard Speck. And, uh, Kevin, I know you were excited at the possibility of, uh, of Tench visiting, uh, IWA (laughs) Mid-South. If this were three decades later. I just imagine him sitting in a folding chair listening to Ian Rotten's 17-minute speeches, just being like, Jesus Christ, looking at the scars on his forehead and being like, this guy's got problems. I feel like Tench is the kind of person who would shout about it being fake. <laughs> Maybe, something like that. Yeah, he does not strike me as a as a wrestling fan. Uh, so, indeed, uh, they do go to the correctional facility. Uh, Ford really crosses the line with something that he says. Uh, basically, what what Speck did is he he murdered eight nurses uh, at the same time, and is subsequently uh, he eventually was uh, given the death penalty, and uh, summarily that was carried out in 1991. So this is definitely one of the more grisly 
crimes that they've explored, and they observed some pretty some pretty bad ones. I am not going to repeat what Ford said, but just know that it's uh, it's it's pretty bad, and it definitely crosses the line. I I can't say that this is something that I would approve of. I understand what he's going for in terms of trying to match the language, but I mean, you just you can't say this, and and. I also think it's one of those things where Holden also hears how some of his colleagues speak about these serial killers, and he's kind of going for that vibe as well, because even when he's being interviewed later on about what he's saying, like, after they shut the tape off, like, they're all saying what a piece of shit spec is, and it's it's one of those things where I think I think both things are true. Holden crosses the line big time with what he says to spec, but also the FBI are a bunch of hypocrites. 100% agreed on both cases. Like he did cross a line. And again, it's like the, with the way the FBI is, like they hear people say that language and they think he's one of them. You know, there's the, you know, he has, the, I think the, the, the classic line from the show is like, you know, if you want to, you know, if, well, I forget exactly how it is, but it's basically you need to get down in the, in the mud if you want to talk to the pigs. It's not that, but it's something along those lines. Uh, and that's kind of his way of being like, the ends justify the means. You know, you got to speak these people's language to get what you want out of them. And you're right, like the FBI, they do this formal interview session about the their meeting with him. And then as soon as they shut the tape off, they shit on the serial killer. So it's like they're basically telling you we're doing this performatively red tape wise, but nothing's going to happen with this. So we can just put this on the record and move on. That is until, you know, that uh, – they get the confession, the the private tape sent to them. So yes, I think both things can can be true in this case. And uh, no warning from Jerome about a bird being thrown into a fan. Would you have wanted to be warned about that? Nah, I guess not. Pretty gruesome though. I mean, it's it's pretty bad, and the look and design of that prison is pretty fantastic too. Like this is not just some like generic, like big wide prison cell, but the design of that prison really struck me this time. Yeah, it was definitely it definitely didn't feel as like uh, homely or accommodating like uh, like I feel like you almost like where where we saw Ed Kemper was like this more open room, you know, like they were kind of in like a community space cafeteria type space to speak to him where this was like your classic like, you know, uh, room where it was just like concrete walls, barred windows like what the you know, the single lamp hanging above the 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 table not as welcoming at all as the other places. So they did a very good job, I think, of setting up each each different prison to fit the prisoner they were going to be interviewing. I also have a, uh, a Juliet fun fact for you, Kevin, that uh, did you, you noticed that they were at a Dairy Queen before they went to the prison. I did. It made me really want a milkshake. Uh, Juliet is the site of the very first ever Dairy Queen. I did not know that. See, so uh, bringing the fun facts here, on the podcast. So there's a lot of consternation and a lot of discussion throughout episodes nine and 10. We mentioned the fact that Smith is a narc before, and this only furthers the investigation. And it's, I, I love the scene when Holden is getting interrogated because he just is not taking it seriously. And he's like, you're just doing the same shit that I do to the killers. And Again, I think both these things are true. Again, the FBI are giant hypocrites, but Holden is also being an arrogant asshole. And I think that's a really fun dynamic that this show presents, that Holden is both right and wrong at the same time. And I think you're just you're, you're seeing him spiral. But I think 
the the idea that he is very competent at his job is important. And I, I'm always of the believer that you either have to be a good person or you have to be competent at your job. You can't be incompetent and an asshole. Otherwise, it just won't work. And I love this that dynamic that we're getting at the end where he is getting so good at what he's doing, but it's also making him into a terrible, terrible human being. I think he's getting arrogant is what I is what I'm gathering. Like he feels like. So far, he's kind of gotten away with his behaviors and he can and he feels like he can justify it. Doesn't matter if his colleagues don't like it or the other heads up in the FBI. It's like, I know better. I'm actually in the trenches. I'm talking to these people. He's getting a little he's getting a little too big for his britches. And this scene specifically with the FBI where he says, like, you know, you're doing what I'm doing, but just a worse job. I immediately in my head got the like the the boardroom scene in Social Network where Jesse Eisenberg's the you have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook. That was like the that was that scene for this show was that that whole informed scene with the FBI in my mind. That is a very good connection. And this is coming off the fact that they have essentially solved another another case in Georgia, Georgia, a state that will become very important as we get into season two, but this is a different case uh, where they're exploring something in Rome and uh, Ford works to get that confession. And I have to say that in terms of the climactic scene of getting, this is both the longest scene. It's one of the most dramatic. I think we do see Holden again, kind of crossing the line at times, maybe not as overtly and aggressively, uh, but what a tremendous back and forth the way that the camera goes back and forth. I mean, this is in terms of the directing of this series, I would say that that confession scene with Devier and Ford is probably the best. Yeah, I think that is one of the best scenes of the show for sure. Really good stuff. And then that, that transitions into Ford and Debbie breaking up. And uh, I hope you like seeing Debbie Kevin because you will never see her again. Well, and that's, I think, the, the climax scene, actually, I think, was really good. Like, the, them in the last episode was great because I think, again, it goes to show, like, she did not break up with him. He he psychoanalyzed, like, he read the situation and realized, oh, you're breaking up with me. And she says, like, is that what I'm doing? And then he says, like, you know, I'll come back, pick up my stuff and let you know, blah, blah. But I think that is such a great microcosm of their relationship. They don't talk to each other. They don't have conversations with each other. They psychoanalyze each other to read their emotions and they pivot and and maneuver based on that but there is no real talking to each other about these things and i think that is that shows you the headspace that holden is in and even she herself is very much entrenched in phd stuff and her her in look into other things is kind of similar to his but just on a different scale and so i think that is the downfall of their relationship you have two people who are too busy trying to use their knowledge to psychoanalyze and they just don't talk to each other the impression that I get is that the physical part of their relationship is the part that is working best. I 100%. Think that, and the rest of it just doesn't work as well. Yep, exactly. And it, and it falls apart. For sure. So we get uh, Kemper has been sending uh, cards to Ford. Ford has been ignoring them. Uh, Kemper kind of makes a more direct plea to come meet him again. And eventually it gets to a point where uh, he is kind of ended up in the hospital because of self-harm and his medical proxy is Ford. So Ford has to fly all the way to California to meet with Kemper. And uh, Kemper is, uh, is very unhappy with the fact that Ford is uh, kind of bloviating and uh, getting talking to the press and 
Uh, Kemper thought that they had built this authentic friendship, but he is realizing that, you know, perhaps Ford is using this for his own professional gains uh, to put all of these people away, put people like Kemper away. And Kemper is perhaps understandably offended uh, because maybe Ford is misrepresented. Like, not to say that Kemper is a despicable human being, but that doesn't mean that he can't be wronged. And uh, there's even a point when Kemper teases the fact that he could kill uh, Ford at any time because of where they're at in the ICU. And uh, it is uh, it is a great way to end uh, season season one, I would say. I think the final few episodes are very, very holding focused, and I think that can be a mixed bag at time because mixed bag because it feels like some of the other characters are kind of uh, being shifted to the background. But this scene with Kemper is a great climax, and it really brings everything together in a great way. Yes, because I think you know he's probably the one that Holden was the least scared of, felt he had the best relationship with, and then here he is, literally. Uh, at the mercy of what Kemper wants to do to him uh, in this episode, only saved by really the shackles that he has attaching him to his hospital bed. And I think this is where he, his body realizes he's gotten too close to the fire. Uh, This is what can happen when you get too close to these serial killers. And he has a panic, a full blown panic attack in the hallway. And I think it's a great way to leave season one. It would have sucked if that was the series ending, but it made me go like, well, okay, let's see how this affects Holden going forward into season two. So awesome ending to, to the season for sure. So throughout the season there, we are seeing what's going on in Kansas. Uh, We are seeing uh, this ADT serviceman doing various things. That is something we're going to talk all about that in season two. I think it would be much more appropriate to do it there. Uh, Did you have any impressions or feelings about, about that? I can only think of just physically the guy looks a lot like Matthew Reese in the Americans or one of his disguises. But I feel like we're obviously maybe seeing like some snapshots of someone who himself is going to be a killer in season two. That was my guess going into this is you're you're sort of building up a, a, a big bad slowly in season one to pay off in season two. Yes. And uh, we'll talk about him in season two. We will also talk about this ADG serviceman. Uh, we will discuss him in as well because there is a, there's probably a lot more information that we will discuss that is not addressed in the show. We'll also talk about what happened to Ed Kemper. Uh, we'll also talk about what has happened to some of the other uh, serial killers as well in terms of their stories. Uh, but that is it for our discussion of season one. Any final thoughts on season one before we get into season two? Very good first season. Start off a little slow with the first couple episodes, but once you get the gang together and, th- and the ball gets rolling, uh, I think it is a really compelling show, just not one that I would recommend binge-watching. All right, Kevin, as we transition into discussing season two, one of the things that I wanted to, to get into was uh, a little bit of a discussion on uh, the city of Atlanta, which plays such an, an integral role uh, in this season. In fact, the last four episodes... I would say it's almost like a mini series. Like it's a, it's definitely a break away from what we know in season one of the show with them really focusing on the interviewing of serial killers. The final four episodes is really about them trying to find uh, the Atlanta child murderer. And uh, this was a huge case. Uh, There is a, there's a great documentary I want to recommend called Atlanta's missing and murdered the lost children. Uh, It is 
on Max, the place to watch for HBO, uh, which don't even get me started on that. Anyway, it's a really, really good documentary, and I think it is a very good supplement to the final four episodes because a lot, again, a lot of the focus is on the procedure and whatnot. The documentary gets into some of the victims, gets more into the politics of Atlanta at the time. But uh, Kevin, I'm very curious to know, like, obviously, because, you know, you are a wrestling fan, I'm sure you have certain perceptions about Atlanta, but what is your relationship with this city? Just in terms of knowledge, have you ever been there? Things like that. I have been there once in, I think, the summer of 2003. My family took a road trip to the south, and we did some parts of Tennessee, and we did Atlanta and all that stuff. So my, you know, and I would have been between, like, freshman and sophomore year of high school when this happened. I don't have a ton of memories of it. You know, we we mostly stuck to the city proper. I remember going to CNN. I remember going to the World of Coke, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, that's really my only relationship with it, aside from, of course, uh, my good pal, Justin Houston, living uh, around the area. So, but, you know, I know it's, it's you know, very heavily uh, populated by black people. Um, racial tensions, a lot of that history exists in that area. But that's really about as much as I know. I'm not like a Atlanta historian by any means. But yes, I have visited once. And I enjoyed my time when I was there. But obviously, way different time than it was in the 70s and a way different experience as a as a white Caucasian. I think part of what makes Atlanta so fascinating is that if you go to any city, there is like a centerpiece. Uh, you go to Chicago and you, you've got the skyline, New York and their skyline, uh, Memphis and Beale Street. Like a lot of these cities have a centerpiece. Atlanta, and this is part of the issue with the city in general, is there really is no centerpiece to the city. Like there's not a central hub for, you know, tourist attractions and things of that nature. There is the CNN Center. There is the College Football Hall of Fame. There are the stadiums where the Atlanta Falcons play. But there really isn't a centerpiece. And I think that is part of what makes Atlanta so unique compared to a lot of other American cities. It's also a city that I think is is known, like wrestling fans, I think are always going to associate it uh, with WCW and the shows that they did the Omni and Center Stage. Marvel fans probably know it best because it's it's an important hub for Marvel we see Atlanta all the time, but it's disguised and used as other cities uh, because of the tax breaks in Georgia. So we have probably seen Atlanta on camera a lot. We just maybe are unaware of it. And of course, a lot of jokes lately being made about uh, showcasing Atlanta parking lots for Marvel movies because nothing in those movies is actually real. So I think that is is a lot of the perception of the city. But as you mentioned, uh, there is a lot of racial tension over their history and the fact that it is so heavily populated uh, by the African-American community. Part of what makes the city historical is uh, the first black mayor of the South, the first black mayor of Atlanta, Maynard Jackson Jr. Uh, He took office in 1974, was the mayor until 1982. And I mention him because he is a small part of the second season of Mindhunter, as well as the black commissioner of the city of Atlanta as well. So just wanted to give a little bit of background to the city of Atlanta. Uh, Kevin, anything to add before we go on to the next thing? Nothing to, to really expound upon there, except for, yeah, I, I thought about how everything these days seems to be 
filmed in Atlanta and Vancouver because of tax breaks. Because I definitely remember listening to some podcasts and stuff where people were on location in Atlanta because they were filming shows or whatever else. So, yeah, that's that definitely seems to be, at least for our purposes, what it's most known for. But I do think a lot of it's it was very interesting to watch how racial profiling played a major part in the Atlanta murders from every side of the coin. Yes, and that's certainly something that we're going to get into. I, I also want to point out season two has a very different look and feel to it. Obviously, we're not spending as much time in Quantico and Pennsylvania. A lot of our focus is on what is going on in Georgia, and that setting is very different. Maybe a lot more neighborhoods, a lot more focus on the hotel, places of that nature. So the setting is different. And one of the things that's worth noting is that the the lead writer of season one was not a credited writer on season two. And I have to believe that that had a, a an, an influence on what happens in season two. And I, I'll, be, I'll be very curious to get your thoughts on this, Kevin, because, you know, we end season one uh, with Holden's life seemingly in tatters and he is literally in the hospital after a panic attack. And while this is addressed in the first episode he does have yet another panic attack at the end of the of the premiere of season two. The show v- very much does not focus on Holden's personal life literally at all. Uh, Any time that we see him, it is all about what he is doing in Atlanta or in the office or things of that nature. We do not get any sense of Holden at all. Uh, we do not see his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend at this point. Uh, we see him bringing a box of his belongings back, but for the most part, Holden's Holden's personal life very much is shunted to the background in favor of putting more emphasis on Wendy and Bill Ted. I'm in favor of that choice, and I'm actually curious to see what critics and just fans were saying about season one at the time it aired, if they thought it was too much Holden, and maybe that was a reason for it. But I also think I, I appreciated having more time with Bill and Wendy uh, in these in, in seeing their personal lives, too. But the one thing I didn't like is it feels like the panic attack stuff goes away pretty much instantly. You get that one moment with the retiring agent and then it's basically not brought up again. And I feel like there's at least a couple moments in Atlanta where it could have flared up that would have been very fitting. And it just doesn't really happen. And, you know, it kind of gets brought up once or twice when he's on assignment by himself. And Wendy's like, oh, do you think that's a good idea? And he's like, yeah, he'll be fine. And then, yeah, he just turns out to be fine. Like there isn't it isn't like a setup for for him, you know, failing or flailing or anything like that. It just feels like it's it, it's uh, it, maybe it was too complex or just because they didn't know how to put it in there. They just kind of put it aside. So that part was a little annoying. But not having to see whatever relationship stuff he was doing or his home life or whatever. I didn't miss any of that stuff. It just felt to me a little strange to brush off, in my opinion, that they brushed it off sort of pretty quickly uh, after after the first episode. Definitely. And what we lose in Holden's personal life, again, a lot of the focus uh, turns to Bill and Wendy. Let's the Wendy stuff doesn't get a lot of time. So let's address that uh, right up here at the top. So Wendy of course is, is a lesbian and this is an important aspect 
of her character because she uses it on a couple of occasions to her advantage uh, when she actually starts interviewing uh, some of the killers and uh, Greg, Greg, who we love, uh, completely misses it, completely misses out on this. And, and uh, yeah, I think the Wendy stuff, what I think works about it is like there's clearly an attempt being made to give her a little bit more to do across the board. And there is a real effort to try and, I guess, give her a showcase. Like, she's not just like telling the boys that they can't do the interviews that they want to. Like, she is genuinely getting more to do. But I think the, the problem, just like uh, with Debbie in season one, is that we don't get enough time to establish Wendy's relationship with this new person. And it's it stinks because, you know, we get maybe five or six scenes and there isn't a lot of buildup to their eventual breakup in uh, the penultimate episode. And I, I, I like the actual breakup scene because Wendy does take some agency and to a certain extent, I think we're meant to sympathize with her, but it's, it's, it's really difficult to see the other perspective because again, we don't get enough of the two of them together to really get a sense of, okay, this is who she, she is as a person versus Wendy, which we get a little bit more. And plus Wendy is ultimately sidelined because she is not in Atlanta uh, with Bill and with Holden. So her, her role in the season for the series finale is basically reduced to like a, a 30 second cameo. Yeah, and that is unfortunate that just because of the nature of the season, you don't get to see too much of her there. But I did like what we did see of that relationship, and I like that it's Holden brings her to this bar to tell her about his mental health stuff, and she just can't help but check out the the bartender. Then she goes back on her own accord, makes a move, and you know, off to the races we go. And I really do like the wrap-up of it where the bartender is kind of giving her a hard time for not being more open and honest with herself because Wendy is still closeted uh, this whole season. And I think that's for her strategic move to just, you know, it's again, it's the 70s in D.C. You have no idea how people are going to react. The FBI with certain comments they make don't seem to be the most open and accepting people in the world. Uh, you know, I think you and I and seeing what she has to go through at like the party and stuff with the one guy who just won't leave her alone makes it all very interesting but I like the idea that, you know, the the bartender kind of gives her a hard time for not being honest and open with herself. And then Wendy sees that that person also isn't honest and open with her ex-husband and son. And she becomes a hypocrite. And that leads to a great breakup scene where, you know, you're telling me to do one thing when you yourself can't even come to accept that. And that sort of ends the relationship. There's a lot more that could have been expounded upon there to build it in all but. You know, what we got was good. I just wish we got more is sort of my takeaway from it. But I thought Anna Torv did a tremendous job in the season with what she was given. Um, so so kudos to her. But, you know, I guess just with the nature of the season, they they had to pick and choose what to do. And, you know, she got she gets the, the shorter straw in some respects. Would the final scene have been better if Wendy had asked Kay uh, to, to tell me when I'm telling lies? Would that have been, made it better? Uh, no, I don't think it would have made it better at all. Uh, so yes, her and Kay, they, they certainly, 
they're certainly trying for something and I appreciate it. I almost wonder if it would have been a nice twist to actually have the relationship be successful in some ways to contrast like just everything that's going wrong with Bill. Like because Wendy is maintaining some sense of distance that she is actually able to find some success in her personal life. I don't know. Would that would that have made for a uh, an interesting twist given what else is going on? Yes, and I think it's because I think we all like Wendy, I think is the I, I don't I and and I think her having success outside of her personal life would be a fun twist because then you have somebody who like it's obvious that Bill is is running himself ragged trying to keep his his business life and you know his professional life and home life together and it's running him ragged. Holden's pretty much all uh, all, all work. We don't really get to see Greg, and that's fine. But I think Anna is sort of just the, a differentiator with her would be that she is able to to keep those things separate. And part of the reason why, you know, I think it's so hard for for Bill and Holden to keep their work separate from their home life. And I think if Anna was able to successfully do that and flourish, that would be a very interesting uh, tale. And it would add just some, I think, some lightness to a very uh, dim season uh, just with a hard topic to to digest so maybe there could have been something to that um but i think even the fact that she ends the season like you said with agency and taking matters into her own hands feels like a victory in and of itself even if it isn't a successful relationship uh unfortunately uh we didn't get to go we didn't get to see what greg's home life is like are you okay with that so greg admits to the group colden has like this come to jesus talk where they all kind of sit down and and hash out some of their issues and that's when Greg is very honest. And then uh, the show basically takes the path that Greg is the worst, which is the correct assessment, I would say. And he gets shit on by his coworkers. He gets shit on by the killers in the prison. And uh, his his role seems to lessen as the season goes on, because just like Wendy, Greg also is not in Atlanta. And that w- really is where the focus of the show is when we get to those final four episodes any any other feelings on Greg besides fuck him? I thought it was very interesting that there was a lot of meetings with the team and he was left out. Like it was very much like, hey, I'm going to talk to Holden and uh, and Bill and I almost said Anna, but that's uh, and Wendy. And then he was like, oh, we just need to talk to this team. And it was like part sometimes it was just inviting them to the party. But other times it's like actual pertinent information to the cases. And I thought that that was an interesting dynamic as to where he stood versus the other three in the team. I could see that. I think that's fair. So I, 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 I want to talk about Bill's personal life. And the reason that I want to do it here at the front is, especially on this rewatch, I just felt incredibly frustrated. Anytime, especially when we get again to Atlanta and the focus turns to Bill and his personal life. And I want to be clear that I am not in any way indicting Nancy as a character or Brian. This is not meant to be kind of uh, bashing them as characters because I think they're trying to do something. But the problem with this show, and this is the same problem that Breaking Bad had had with, with Skyler, in that Skyler becomes this obstacle to Walter doing things. And I think the audience despite the fact that Walter is a terrible person, the perception becomes, oh, Skylar's a blanket that's preventing the show from doing what Walter can do, right? I think it's a similar situation here in that 
yes, what what's happening is terrible with Brian. And the situation is that Brian befriends some older boys and these older boys, they, they apparently kill a toddler and Brian tries to resurrect the, the child uh, by putting it on a cross. And this basically becomes a real tension throughout the season as Brian is basically going backwards in his development, or I'm sorry, uh, Brian is going backwards in his development and he's wetting the bed and he's playing with his baby toys and Nancy is getting very frustrated and every scene is just Nancy, um, you know, she's smoking, she's very unhappy and I think Nancy is absolutely right to be unhappy, but I think the writers put her in the terrible position of they're preventing Bill and Holden from being together. And like the show is the show being a procedure. And again, and again, I understand they're trying to elevate this and they're trying to not be a typical network procedure, but it just part of the challenge with the procedure is that you want the focus to be on the characters. And anytime you introduce the personal aspects in many ways, you are taking away from what we want to see in a procedure. And that is the mystery component, finding out who the suspect is, and then, you know, sending them to jail or whatever, holding them accountable. I feel like it was almost missing the cathartic release that you want from something like this. Like, there, were, I, I feel like I wanted another scene, like in season one, where Bill kind of breaks down his office a little bit about why he keeps his life so private and you know, just talking about like, you know, don't you think I want to be here? You know, this, but this is what I have to do. You know, I'm doing this to, I'm, you know, me doing this helps this family, da, da, da. And then her maybe, you know, or her blowing up at him about, you know, these neighbors are telling me these things and this and that. Like, I felt like that moment would have been, it would never came. And I was just waiting for it. And I kind of wanted it to happen because I think it would have given a nice release and helped each, help them each understand each other a little bit better. And I think there could have been just something better to it. I suspected something was going to happen with Brian in the season because of the way he acted in season one. You know, he was always very quiet and and whatever in season one, too. And when they're talking about children and upbringing and stuff like that, I was like, OK, well, there's only one kid in this show and some some something's going to go down. Pretty intense what they decided to, to do with it. And I just think I, I just kind of just never sensed like there was anything more than just like, uh, well, yeah, this is tough. Anyways, I got to go to Atlanta. We'll talk about it when I get back. And then suddenly, you know, he shows up at the end of the season and they've moved out. And it's like, what the heck's going on here? It just, it, it, to me, it all felt too fast. And there was never just like enough moments of them having a real communication with each other. And it, and having, again, that cathartic release that you get from this tension that's building between all these things going going into this relationship. So I, I made a note of this, Kevin. Do you realize that Bill did not have a scene with a conscious Brian until episode eight of season two? Yes, I did. And I think that was a, that's that I think was actually like a good intentional thing to show like how little he's around. See, I, I kind of am in the, on the other side of that. Like to me, if you are, if you are trying to justify, because I think Bill is making an attempt to do both things. I just, I feel like we don't know enough about Brian as, as a character. And again, shooting with kids is tough because they're on an hour's restriction. And especially for a show like this, like I understand that you are trying to minimize the amount of time that you're using 
Brian and even some of the other kids when they're in Atlanta. So I understand the, the difficulty of that, but I think I do issue- think something that would have helped with this would have been like, you know, we know Bill Bill's in Atlanta Monday to Thursdays and then he goes home Fridays for, uh, you know, whatever, you know, psychiatrist appointments Brian has. And then he's home for the weekend. So what is Bill doing on weekends while he's home? What is he doing to help Nancy? What is he doing to help Brian? I think even just being told the steps he's taken and the time he's trying to spend with his kid, you know, I'm sure some of it he has to rest because obviously I'm sure all the travel and, and the mental work he's doing in Atlanta takes its toll. But at the same time, it would have been nice to know, like, how is he how is he making his weekends count being home with his family? I almost wonder if like if we had gotten like if we could get like a 10th episode that is just what is Bill doing over the weekend? How is Wendy spending time with Kay? You could do something with Holden and just like make that an episode towards the middle of the season. And maybe what Holden does can be much more focused on the, the plot per se, perhaps. But I think an episode like that would have gone a long way to making us invest more in the personal lives of Wendy and Bill. Because again, I don't, I get what they're going for. I just, especially with the Bill stuff, it was just, it became very frustrating. Definitely frustrating. And again, there's some good scenes in there and some good moments in there, but overall it just, it felt lacking. Uh, it, 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 it felt like a bit of a mess. Yeah. I, I like, again, the, the, my critique is more of the writing and less of the, of the performances. Like I think Nancy does as, as good of a job as you could do in a, in what becomes kind of a hapless role. But I, I digress. I want to get away from uh, the negativity. Uh, speaking of, well, there's no good transition. Uh, let's talk about the BTK killer. Uh, he gets addressed more in season two. Uh, there is, there is even Bill is, uh, is going to Kansas to kind of make some assessments and try to figure this out. It doesn't really go anywhere necessarily, uh, because in real life, spoilers for real life, everybody, uh, the BTK killer was active from 1974 until the early 1990s. He took 13 years off, uh, started writing and starting write, writing notes again in 2004, and he was finally caught in 2005. So I don't know what the intention was with this storyline is if there was ever going to be like a moment when they fast forward and they eventually catch him. But this is something that they were clearly building up and they never actually got to pay it off. But uh, any thoughts on those scenes? I know uh, the last scene of the series, what a way to end it uh, with uh, some, basically uh, here there's autoerotic asphyxiation and uh, yeah, a really disturbing way to end the series. He couldn't have had a noble death like David Carradine. Uh, he's he is in fact uh, still alive. <clears throat> Wild. So I was expecting him to be kind of the big bad of season two. Like we were building him up in season one with all these little cutscenes and stuff like that, and then it was more the same in season two, which isn't a bad thing, but it does leave me again sort of lacking because I was very interested to see where all that was going to go. You know, especially his wife catching him. Uh, in like episode one and presenting him with a book in another episode. And then he's like doing stuff at the libraries and, you know, following people and all that stuff to me, following all that stuff was really, really interesting, but it is a shame that we have no idea what, what it was going to look like. Maybe he's going to be the big bad for season three. It just, uh, it was all interesting and uh, good stuff here, but the fact that it never gets a payoff is really disappointing. And another aspect of the season that, 
I think, kind of gets shunted to the background, with the exception of episode five, is uh, we get we get some additional interviews, and it's it's almost like I don't know. It, it almost feels like okay, we are obligated to continue this aspect of season one, so we're gonna we're gonna hit, we're gonna get the heavy hitters. We're gonna get the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. We're gonna get Charles Manson. We're gonna return to Ed Kemper. Unfortunately, Ed Kemper only really gets a cameo, but you know, Wendy and Greg start doing the interviews and they're not having nearly as much success. So I wonder if this is a key aspect. Again, the season does definitely feel a lot different. And I wonder if, you know, the lead writer is kind of the one that was really the the person putting together the scenes of them just talking about the killings and whatnot. And if his departure is the reason why the interviews don't feel as meaty and as as worthwhile as the ones in season one. Yeah. And I also think it is just something where like, where do you, what do you do Charles Manson? Where do you go from there? Like that's the main event. You know, you can't just go back, I think to just like your rote, you know, killers or some lesser than people. So it does sort of feel like once you get to that interview, that either should have been the season finale or you have to pivot once you do it. And that's what they did. Cause like you said, it's like a mini series with Atlanta, so it's almost like, okay, we know we're going to go in this direction. We teach Charles Manson in season one. Let's pay that off in season two. And because we know our back half is here, let's get some other big names around this time in there first and then do it. And I like those scenes. I liked that they changed the dynamic and they had Wendy and Greg did one. I like that they had Holden and um, I forget the character's name, the the officer in Atlanta who had the Molo cups that he kept giving the guy to, to talk. So I do like that they changed the dynamic a little bit. But of course, you get classic Bill and Holden when it comes to Charles Manson and what a scene, man. That's such a great interview with uh, with him and how he's fucking with Bill. And it's like we know everything that Bill's gone through with his own son. So that's why it's really getting it's really getting to him when when Manson's talking about all the things he says. Uh, all of it comes together really well. So what we got was was really good. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it is different than season one, but I don't necessarily think. So bad, but I, and I do think that the way the show goes with transitioning them from doing these interviews to really being in Atlanta full time is pretty smooth. So I think it, it it actually plays out pretty well. I agree. I I love the idea that okay, we're building up to Charles Manson. Like Charles Manson is the main event. Like this is the big interview, and they get absolutely nothing from it. And I think you can draw a lot of parallels between between this season of Mindhunter and Zodiac, because I think with Zodiac you're getting a lot of the same thing. Like you're getting a lot of buildup, and there's there's no satisfying payoff. And I think in this case, you know, they have this interview with Charles Manson, and Charles Manson is just so out there and just a, 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 an enormous liar, a Hulk Hogan level liar in so many ways because. He's just so full of shit and they get almost nothing. And then Holden has kind of a follow-up with, uh, with one of his followers. And that is just so much more straightforward. And it feels like with Charles Manson, we're getting all these lies. And then with that follow-up, it's like, okay, this is what actually happened. And we basically are confirming that Charles Manson is, is a monster, not only a monster, but continues to be a liar and I have to point out, Kevin, did you realize 
that the same person who played Charles Manson in Mindhunter also played him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I read that before watching the episode, but I don't think if I had, I would have noticed that. Yeah, he's in pretty heavy makeup. Uh, the guy who plays Berkowitz is also uh, in some pretty heavy makeup as well. But two things I do like from this interview is the beforehand where Manson refuses to talk to them. So they talk to Ed and you realize that all these serial killers have egos and it's them talking to like Ed. When they talk to Ed, you kind of sense that like his feelings were hurt, that they came to talk to Manson. They weren't going to talk to him. And he seems genuinely happy when they do talk to him. And then Manson gets jealous that they're talking to Ed and decides to talk to them. And it's just like, I love that dynamic. They're like little kids, these people. Uh, but sure. then a I great think use of Ed Kemper, I would say, did you bu- did you find it dubious that they put Ed and Charles Manson in the same prison? Yes, definitely. And then I you think find it's... out they actually were in the same prison, though, which is wild because you think you're like, all right, they got to do this to, to, you know, take liberties to carry the story along. I get it. But yes, in fact, in the same prison. But the other thing I like is seeing throughout the the show with the way the new FBI director plays it is like. You know, especially Bill seeing Manson. Well, one, I love when he's late to the psychiatrist appointment for Brian and then he finds out he spoke to Charles Manson and suddenly he's fascinated and wants to hear about that. And you feel like, all right, well, maybe if I could tell some stories, I'll get some leverage with Brian here. You don't really get to see that play out, but that's the idea. But at the, the same time, the look on Nancy's face is pretty great when this, has, it, when this happens. It's great. Um, but then I love that you you get the sense of like, yes, the, these people are doing important work. But anytime they're at some sort of gathering, whether it's the retirement party, the retreat, it's like, say, say the line, Bart, with Bill. He just has to tell all these stories over and over again about talking to these killers. And like, it's almost like the FBI director trots them out to tell the stories and get, keep the people entertained. Like that almost becomes Bill Bill's reason for these things. And that has to be a little bit, de, you know, dehumanizing. Um, yes, I'm sure it has its benefits to making face and, and uh, rubbing shoulders with some of these people. So maybe you get some funding or, you know, leeway or this or that, but it has to just be like, let's trot out the talent and have them tell stories each time we have these events. And even if you don't get to see that, I'm sure Bill, Bill does a great job of it, uh, being charismatic and getting along with everybody there. But I'm sure deep down, you're just like, Jesus Christ, I got to tell these stories again. So I like seeing that side of it. I love the idea that Bill comes in and he's glad handing and back slapping and just, telling all these stories, making it really entertaining, really accessible. And then Holden's Holden comes in and is just like, well, the profile and the psychological, it's just like, oh, it's so tremendous. And there's a great moment in the first episode uh, when Wendy and Bill are outside and, and Bill opens up to Wendy quite a bit about his own personal situation. And, you know, they, they, they have this great funny moment where Bill talks about Holden boring everybody to death and how it's time uh, to go back inside. And uh, I, I, I kind of wish the show had more of those little moments, but I, that in a show that can often be humorless, the humorous moments stand out even more. Wendy and Bill are my favorite duo on the show. Their scenes are, my thing, my favorite amongst the show together. You almost feel like they're two adults in a world of, you know, children. And it's very funny to see that dynamic. And I, it feels very real to me that Holden's the like he can trust Wendy and vice versa. And yeah, anytime they're in a scene, the two of them together, it's it's a it's a treat. It's they're definitely my favorite duo in the show uh, for sure. So let's uh, I think I want to talk about uh, just kind of how this pays off. So 
uh, Kevin, I'm going to give you a true or false question. True or false, Ed Kemper is still alive. True. It is true. Ed Kemper is still alive. Uh, he was denied parole in 2017. He is up for parole again in 2024. But the uh, the assumption is, is that he will never be released. He, uh, he, is, uh, he was born in 1948, uh, so he is in his 70s at this point, but he will probably never be released for... With good reason. I'm not going to argue with you if that's what you're saying. If that's what you were trying to to get me to do. <laughs> no, I wasn't trying to. Uh, <laughs> Charles Manson is dead, of course. Yes. And uh, David Berkowitz also is alive, and he's gone back and forth about whether he wants parole or not. Uh, but he has become super, super religious, uh, as as you do in prison. And uh, yes, the son of Sam David Berkowitz is also uh, still with us as well. So. It's fascinating just to think about the fact that, you know, a show that is so historical in nature that that takes place in the 70s and 80s, like these people are still alive. And uh, it's pretty crazy to think about. It is. Do you think he uh, when Berkowitz found religion, did he find one with like a dog deity? That's a, that's a good one. Uh, I, I Maybe that's certainly a possibility. Uh, are you interested because it is a dog deity? No, not if it talks and tells me to kill people. That might be a bridge too far. Yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that. So let's talk about what happens in Atlanta. Uh, this is something that very early on is, is teased out. Uh, there's some investigations uh, that are going on um, as well. And, oh, I do want to point this out before we go to Atlanta. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the entire show, Kevin... Uh, takes place in the second episode and this doesn't really have a good place so let's just do it here uh when they are talking to one of the btk victims and uh bill and the kansas police officer are sitting in the front of the car and the victim is in the back of the car do you know what scene i'm talking about yeah when they're in the garage and like the 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 victim the gunshot wound victim he wants to be uh like kept private and all that stuff yes one of the reasons that I love that scene so much is because in the first season, so much of the focus is on the prisoners and interrogating them. And I think with this scene, there's this transition point that, yes, we, there's still going to be a focus on profiling and serial killers. But this season, I think, gives a lot more uh, to the victims. And we will see that play out in Atlanta as well. And again, because we're talking about David Fincher, it's just a really well shot scene. There is a there is a tip, a typical TV way of doing that scene, but like they never keep the the victim in focus. They're always avoiding his face. I think the music works really well to set the atmosphere. That's just a scene that again could be done in a typical way, but Fincher, because he's Fincher, uh, just elevates it to another level and. Uh, that scene really stood out to me, even on the rewatch, and it's one of my favorites of the series. Yeah, it's crazy, and it's but it's one of those scenes where I definitely had to watch with the subtitles on. It's very quietly done, but very well executed. Uh, for sure. So let's let's really get into Atlanta. Something else that I really liked about the Atlanta stuff, especially, is we got introduced uh, to a character in season one, Jim Barney. Uh, Jim Barney interviewed to become a member of the team in season one, but they basically decided 
pretty bluntly because he was black, this wasn't going to work out because of who they were interviewing. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if this was affected uh, by, you know, actual events that of the late, you know, 2017 through 2019, if that had an influence. But uh, they bring him back and he basically becomes a main cast member uh, for the duration of season two. And he does get to participate in interviews with Holden. He is a prominent part of the investigation. He is almost kind of a liaison to the black community in Atlanta. And I'm just glad that they were able to uh, give Albert Jones as Jim Barney something more to do because it feels like he got a little bit of a short shrift in season one. But to see him in season two, I think it added a lot. I think it really... It made the Atlanta stuff feel a lot more tangible. It gave us more to connect with. And yeah, that's I, I just wanted to to dedicate a minute or two to talking about him because I think having him involved really gave a different feel uh, to this season. Most definitely. I'm glad we got a character that we knew and not didn't have to get all new people for season two. And I like that, you know, he's the he's the person who can kind of explain, hey, these, these, this is what it's like in Atlanta. This is this is sort of the lay of the land here. I understand you do your thing certain ways there in D.C., but D.C. is not Atlanta. And this is how how it goes on and why, you know, he's explaining the the racial dynamics, the history of the police and the and the KKK and things like that. And so he's a really good character to have sort of lay that out for them and the audience subsequently and, and all that going on. He does a really tremendous job. And I think that's why I like the scene so much with him and Holden doing the interview and he shows his worth. Uh, you, you just got to show that, yes, he can carry his own weight in these situations. And he's basically he, he can exist on the same plane as as our uh, our hero, so to speak. So, yeah, really great work from him. Yeah. And, you know, we don't get as much Bill and Holden together. Obviously, they do the Charles Manson interview, but Bill is very much in and out. So I think Jim is kind of the person that in many ways becomes Holden's like main partner when they're in Atlanta. But one of the interactions that I really liked between Bill and Holden is early on, Holden calls Bill to come to California and basically bring him home, so to speak. And uh, the reason that I love that moment so much is, uh, and this is the point when I realized that Bill and Mike Ehrmantraut would get along really well. Bill basically gives the same speech that Mike Ehrmantraut gives in Better Call Saul, where this is what you're going to do and is very straightforward about it. And I think in a lot of ways, it kind of resets the show's dynamics to where Bill and Holden are a little bit more on solid ground, at least to start the season. But yeah, I think the Bill and Holden stuff is, is really fascinating. And I think one of the reasons that I think the show was canceled too soon is I would love to see how Bill's personal life being in shambles even more so because his family has essentially abandoned the house. Like how would that affect their dynamic and what would happen in a season three? So it, it just stinks that we did not get as much of them in season two and we're not going to get any more of them afterward. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bummer. I've liked, I liked all the, the scenes that they did have together as small as they had, you know, even just like the, debriefing at the at the hotel bar after a long day and of course the scene where eventually uh holden kind of calls out bill for not being present enough and bill kind of reads him the riot act as to exactly why he isn't there and he puts him in his place really good stuff 
Uh, they're, they're, they're just great together on screen. And, and like a lot of things in this season, it was really good. We just didn't get enough of it. So as mentioned, a lot of the focus is on what's going on in Atlanta. And there's there's some back and forth. Holden goes down to sit, to, to do an initial investigation. And there is a point in which he is um, he thinks he's being seduced. Uh, by one of the hotel workers, but the reality is, is that he is being introduced to some of the moms who are, the, they are the mothers of uh, the victims of the Atlanta child murderers. So it's, it's just, it's, it's this very depressing background, kind of this very depressing situation. But the thing that I love so much about it is I think getting to see the moms is such an important part of this season and getting to understand who they are, because again, we're talking about kids. And I think that anytime you're introducing kids into the dynamic, it just makes for a really especially sad situation. But the thing that I love so much about the way that they initially set it up is that they do put the focus on this hotel worker who's kind of this, you know, is not maybe not working class, but kind of a lower middle class person. And again, the the this how suspicious the moms are of Holden and of the FBI and even of the police department. I mean, you could do in, in my view, you could almost spin this show off and just do one focused on the moms themselves. Because, I mean, their stories are pretty harrowing. And again, the documentary that's on HBO kind of expands on what they did. But I think such an important part of the season. And one of the reasons that I love the season so much is getting that flavor, that Atlanta flavor, and getting the moms involved. It's it's really great stuff. I think it also is a great way for Holden to really it shows why he's so personally involved because I'm sure with the FBI and a lot of these departments, a lot of these cases, they're paperwork, they're probabilities. It's having to uh, decide what's important and what isn't. And that is extremely difficult to do and explain these things like it's your work when you're looking the mothers in the face and explaining them to them. Uh, And it's harder to do that when you're saying, when you're promising them you're doing everything they can and their kids are still dead or missing, or they've been hurt at all before. Uh, and so there's so much power in, in holding have to confront head on these people whose lives were affected and him to get more personally invested in it. And all the moms, especially the main, the main one, are exceptional. And I think that's what it takes to really, you know, when you go from like, why are we so focused on this Atlanta case uh, or these smaller cases? And it's because it's the personal touch goes a very long way with Holden. We saw that in season one with like the school and things like this. And obviously this is a way bigger case. Uh, and eventually it expands where the FBI gets permission to go. But I really like seeing that Holden is kind of thinking he's going on a date. This is thrown in his face and he has to really quickly pivot. And then suddenly these typical excuses you get aren't going to fly. Um, and it all works out so well. And I think that's it's it's a great way to kick off uh, whatever, everything that's happening in Atlanta and especially as the numbers grow and it just gets more and more grim as we go on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's tremendous. Yeah. June Carroll does a tremendous job of playing Camille Bell and she's kind of the main person. We do get some interactions 
with some of the other moms, but she is the main one. And I think uh, she does a, a great job. Sierra McLean as Tanya Clifton also does a tremendous job. Tanya uh, being the hotel worker, uh, just some really great stuff. And again, just adding some flavor uh, to what's going on in Atlanta. So one of the other aspects that I want to talk about is I want to talk about the police commissioner and the mayor. Obviously, it is treated as a big deal to have the very first black mayor. But the reality of the situation is perhaps a bit more complicated. And they and they delve into these complications. And I think this season is so much more interested in the red tape, in the bureaucracy, the, the kind of interagency feuding. But what I want to know, Kevin, is what are your thoughts on kind of the police commissioner's role and the mayor's role in this entire situation? I think it's an unfortunate reality of how a lot of politicians are, which is what do what what can I do to get reelected? What can I do to get more money into the city? And that's what drives you. It's not solving these cases unless that happens to be the most uh, if that's the best thing for your case. And that's why. Every, everything that they all the research that they've done that Holden's done leaves them to believe it's a black male. They wouldn't they refuse to go and, and say that that's the 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 profile of the person they're they're hunting, so to speak. They everyone wants to lay it on a member of the KKK. They want to they want it to be a white person. Uh, he purposely takes it out of the police, the, the police department's hands uh, because they have a history of having KKK members there. And so every move they make is very much contingent on what's going to make me look good to the public, what's going to get me reelected. And it just it's just local politics getting in the way of uh, honest hard work with uh, that they're trying to do to catch this killer. And it sucks. But that is that is very true to life. Uh, I was getting Hermes and Futurama flashbacks when Holden uh, was trying to get the crosses made and he talks to the one police officer I mean, that is just city bureaucracy. It's, <laughs> it's perfect. It was so perfect. Like talking about, like, oh, you need the right org numbers to charge it to. You know, it needs to it needs to be paid out of the right pocket or the left pocket of the pants. It's all coming from the same place, but it needs to be the same. Oh, my God. And then the police officer just sits there like, well, what, what do you what do you want me to do? And then he buys the crosses and builds him his damn self. <laughs> It's uh yeah I I love that Holden gets so frustrated and and I think that's a very real thing that you have these these individuals who are just purely there because of bureaucracy because they they're enforcing these very banal rules that exist and again I can't help but think like that police officer was probably the biggest troublemaker in school and what happens with troublemakers in school they become police officers at least. That's that's my perception, um, and I found it in many cases to be the truth. But yeah, that's 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 my opinion. But it's, I think again, it's it is both funny and sad at the same time. Do you think uh, would have been too much for Holden to just punch him in the face? I mean, I wouldn't have. I certainly that would have been the greatest act that he could have committed in that situation. <laughs> I, gets, I think it would have been. Gets, great. He gets cheered by the people in the office. <laughs> what if Holden was like? So this is how people become serial killers. Exactly. This stuff right here. Like this is why this is why murder happens. He just quits. He's like, you know what? I get it. I finally get it. And fuck all of you. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna become one myself. You have That's created right. a monster, and the and third season suddenly becomes very different. And I'm gonna be. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna make the same stupid mistakes as the rest of you. 
good. I'm just going to kill a bu- I'm going to kill a bunch of randos. I'm going to go from city to city and just kill a bunch of randos. That's right. Absolutely. So, uh, the director. So David Fincher directs the first three episodes of season two, and the final four episodes are directed by Carl Franklin. Carl Franklin uh, is not. He's unfortunately not a well-known black filmmaker, but I do have to say that bringing in a black filmmaker for these final episodes was not only appropriate, but I think it again adds something to the proceedings. And again, Carl Franklin is somebody who is in his seventies. He's a little bit on the older side. Do you have, do you have any knowledge of Carl Franklin as a director? None at all. So I think it's one of those situations where he's done a lot of TV shows in terms of doing directing one-offs. And I think the movie that he's, he does have two movies that are in the Criterion Collection, uh, one of which is Devil in the Blue Dress with Denzel Washington. It is this very good noir-type movie. And I think that he's, I would say underrated is probably the best way that I could describe him. But I was a big fan of that. And it's because of his directing in the series that I even decided to uh, to watch this, to watch a couple of the movies that he did as a, a director. So the other movie that he did stars Bill Paxton. It's called One False Move. It's also really, really good as well. Uh, he also directed Out of Time with Denzel Washington. So he is definitely somebody that is, is has some credibility. And I just think that him being a part of this, I think, really adds to the proceedings. And I think one of my favorite aspects, I mean, you and I love to talk about a good montage. One of my favorite montages, maybe of all time, is when they are babysitting the bridges because they realize that the bodies are going in the river and they're trying to monitor literally all of the bridges. And we basically get this montage of what their days and nights are like and just having to sleep through the day, the struggles that go with that, trying to stay awake at night, eating crappy food. It's, it is such a great montage. And again, it is both funny and sad at the same time. Like it really illustrates just the depressing nature of these stakeouts and the actual work that it takes to kind of be in law enforcement, that it's not all guns. It's not all cases. It's not, but what it really is is just watching a river to see if maybe something happens. Yeah, there's a great Parks and Rec episode where the character Andy wants to go into police enforcement and they have him start as like a night as like a watch guard on weekends to the government hall and he's bored to death. And it's like, yeah, dude, that's what most of this work is. It's just standing around. Nothing's happening and it's paperwork. So, yeah, the montage is great or just like the little things they do to prank each other or keep each other sane, uh, kind of like the the bonding that happens there. Uh, that that's all a good part of it, too. But it also goes to show that, like, you know, when you get to this later, when the commissioner calls it off because it's costing the city too much money, it's just like it, it's it's one to see where this work is going. You know, it's a lot of people watching these bridges. It's a lot of overtime. It's a lot of uh, just costs incurred from all of this. And it's like, oh, this giant case with, you know, two dozen children being killed is ultimately going to be called off because of a financial reason. So, yes, it's it's nice to see the non-glamorous side of the police work, but also it goes to show the the bad side of government where it's just like, yes, these things are awful. We don't have the money to carry it through. You're just like, what the F? 
Yeah, because there's a lot of tension because they don't actually know who committed this crime and is it the same person? You know, they do investigate the KKK a little bit and this conflicts with Holden's profile and Holden's profile is controversial because he's basically saying that a white person would not be able to drive into these neighborhoods and incentivize kids to come in their car because they're going to be very dubious. And we even get kind of an example when they when they drive around a Maryland uh, neighborhood and Greg uh, is picking up kids and uh, Greg getting shit on by the uh, the black parents uh, shouting from the apartment. Uh, great stuff. Big thumbs up to that. Hilarious. Uh, and I was wondering, I was like, what is the point of this? And then I like that it pays off in the later scene where he talks about the the reluctance of black children to get in a car with a white man versus a black person. Really good stuff. And yeah, yelling at Greg, though, the highlight of it. So, yeah, I mean, Holden's profile is 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 controversial, but, you know, he's every he is very clearly also trying like he does develop a personal investment in all of this. And I think the funny thing is they they watch the bridges so hardcore. Then, of course, on the last night they're watching, uh, they hear a body get plopped into the river. But despite the fact that they're watching the bridges, they still don't they don't see the body getting thrown. And that is wild to me that after all this babysitting, that ultimately they miss they miss the big moment. Of course, isn't that I feel like that has to be more common than we know. It's you do all this and then you miss the big moment. And yeah, it's it's hard. It stinks. So the person that they really get into investigating is Wayne Williams, and I think with this, with this, with him uh, as kind of a character, there's a lot of telling and not showing. I think he comes across as being a little bit arrogant, but d- obviously being arrogant does not mean that you're a murderer. Otherwise, we'd have a lot more murderers. But there's a lot of discussion from kind of external people about who Wayne is and who Wayne isn't and some of the things he says and some of the things he does in terms of, Oh, he's trying to find uh, the next Michael Jackson and trying to get involved with music. But is that just a cover uh, for his predilections and things of that nature? And they're kind of going back and forth and he's playing the media a little bit as well uh, because the media is obviously very invested in this, not just as a story, but I'm sure for ratings as well. So they're outside of his house and he does an interview where he requests to not have his face shown. And yeah, what, what was your perception of, uh, of Wayne Williams throughout uh, the, these final couple of episodes? A very irritating dork, all things considered. Um, but I think, you know, I, uh, I think he again, Holden talks about it. He fits the profile of, you know, people not living up to their potential and this and that when it comes to uh, like uh, when it comes to these killers. Um, and I like that they interview people in the real life and you sort of see like the discrepancies in his story. Like, yeah, there's some truth to what he's saying, but that doesn't all add up. And there's there's ton, and, you know, it goes to show in the the with the police work and things like there's tons of circumstantial evidence that make it. So, yeah, he's probably the killer, but. We don't have a body. We don't have a sure thing. And that's ultimately very frustrating to both them and the and the parents and everybody else. And it's 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 but he's the person who plays that character does a really good job of doing so. But 
you know, it, it was, it was also like you see when they catch him and, uh, he's black and Holden says something like, Oh, I bet you're glad he's black. And it's like, well, that's not really, I'm sorry. Uh, Holden is told that by, um, Bill. And it's like, that's not really fair. Come on. Um, but it goes to show, you know, like, even though that's not the thing that people want to hear, it's probably the truth. And that's, and that's hard, but you know, it is, it is interesting that, and, and I love the scene where they're interviewing him in the room and you see like the commissioner, all the people looking in at their, at the way they're doing things and how you're like, you think you're really getting close to something there with him. Um, yeah, all just, all just very interesting, but the, the, the guy who plays him does a really tremendous job. Uh, and like you see like you know, they go to get the carpet to see if it matches fingernail prints and the carpets change. So even if he is an irritating dork, he's not dumb in, in many ways. For sure. And based on just watching these episodes, did you come away thinking he was guilty for everything? No, I didn't think so. Cause even when they were talking about it, they could, they could link a good amount of the murders, but not all of them. I think there was definitely a couple that he was. And it's, I mean, that turns out to be true to life about what he was, uh, what he was, you know, actually put in prison for versus what he was accused of. But yeah, it's it's hard to say because you know there's always you know they talk about the copycat killers and this and that, and I'm sure Atlanta has a particularly high crime rate, especially at this time. So it's hard to say all of them, but I would say you know for the person they're looking for connected to the 14 or 15 kids out of the 20, like 29 or whatever it is, it it, it stands to reason that would probably be him at least. I could I can see that. I I think the documentary, as I've mentioned a couple times before, they really delve into some some of the specifics and I think it puts even more of a question mark in my mind whether he did any of it, some of it, all of it. And I think that's kind of the point. And again, did you were you making the parallels with Zodiac like I was, especially as we're going through the winning moments of the final episode? One thousand percent. And it made very clear why they chose Fincher to do a do a show like this for sure. Yeah. And I think it's both fitting and unfortunate that like this is how the series ends, that it does end with this very Zodiac like feeling. And I would love to have seen them kind of expand and go into other places in future seasons um, and just see how the, the the true crime wave affects the work that they're doing and you know, movies like Silence of the Lambs that kind of allude to some of the work that's being done here, just to see how that kind of affects everything. But it's uh, it's unfortunate. And uh, we do get them getting a lot of applause and credit for what they're doing. But it's this very hollow feeling because in the end, even though it matches the profile, Kevin Holden is just not sure it it's this feels like the story of Holden's life that in many ways, you know, he is both living up to his potential, but he is not because they may not have found the right person. And uh, there seems to be some significant doubt in his mind and things are starting to wind down and they're removing uh, agents from the field, so to speak. And in the end, the person Wayne is, is charged with two murders, but he's never charged with any of the murders of of the kids. He's charged with murdering two adults, and he has basically been in prison since then because of it. And just a very hollow feeling, but they're going to get more funding, and as they're transitioning 
into the Ronald Reagan administration, uh, the serial killer work is is going to continue. And uh, yeah, Bill walks in and his wife and son have abandoned him. We don't get to see much of Wendy in the final episode. And uh, Holden's just living his life and uh, is definitely frustrated by what he's seeing, but seems also resigned to what his life is now. That has to be a very common feeling, I think, with FBI or police and stuff when you put somebody behind bars. I mean, yeah, there's some open and shut cases, but for some of this, when you're going on evidence and some other things, you you have to have that feeling of like, it feels like we got the right guy, but I'll never know. And you just have to go with it. Like that's that, I guess, is the work. And I think, you know, seeing Holden having to talk to the mothers and they're not sure that, you know, well, well some of them are certain it, that's not the person who killed their kids. That gives him some pause. And I like how the, one of the mothers uses the term like you're taking your victory lap and then they send the the, the private jet to pick him up in Atlanta with uh, with Bill. And Bill says, like, let's take our victory lap. I, I like that parallel a lot. It goes to show like, you know, we're celebrating and having this big kind of removal from Atlanta. But our work, it feels like your work is unfinished and it's not really deserved but maybe that's just going to be with a lot of the cases and Holden's learning that as he as he progresses in the FBI. Uh, and then, yeah, like, like you said, Bill goes home and you find that Nancy has removed herself. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know if that felt totally true. It's like I would like to know where they went. Did they go to a, a you know, a, another family member, a hotel? Did they buy another house behind his back? That seems almost like impossible for that to happen. Um, I guess she is a realtor, though, so maybe not. I guess that I just pieced that together. Uh, so yeah, it's just, I would have liked to see where that goes, but it felt like a weird way to, to end things. I don't know. what do you think about it? I agree. It is a weird way. It feels again, I think one of the reasons that I put forth the idea that this was canceled too soon is because the way this season ends, it just feels like there's unfinished, a lot of unfinished stories. Again, we solved the Atlanta part to an extent, as much as it can be solved. So I like that part of it, but it just feels like we're kind of, mi- we're, we're, we're missing something and we're, mi- I think we're missing uh, a story. So I, I really would have loved to have seen a couple more seasons just to really hash this out, you know, do something with the, the BTK killer and, you know, just explore this world more because there's a, there's a lot of places for them to go uh, because there's a lot of serial killers in the 1980s and nineties. So it would have, uh, it, it's, it's just really unfortunate. I have two odds and ends that I want to get to, uh, that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, we get two really good scenes in churches. Uh, the first one is in Virginia, uh, with Bill and you mentioned this scene as one that you really liked. Why is that? Well, I do think it goes, it's again, a community who has these feelings about these killings and stuff. And they don't understand the process behind it. Uh, and you just have like a, a detective who's trying to explain it and try to being rational about it. But then you get Bill, an authority figure who stands up, takes the initiative. And again, he's a very personal person. We've seen that with him regaling stories and stuff. So he's able to kind of command the room, explain why we can't get information, give the community the trust of the investigator and sort of calm things down. And I like seeing him in that role. So I thought that was a very good scene. And the second one is when they're in a church, in a black church in Atlanta, and the mayor and the commissioner are speaking, and, you know, they're speaking to their constituents, and uh, things are not going well. And it's even to the point where these black politicians 
are being booed out of a church for God's sakes. And I actually appreciate the fact that we get to see this from Holden's kind of point of view. And we get to see like how big of a deal this is. And it makes the stakes more clear. It puts the pressure on these two individuals. And I think it's just a really powerful scene of showing what can happen and the pressure that, you know, these people are under. And I think it's a very real thing to, to have black politicians in these positions of power, but are they really able to help the people that need the help the most? You know, they put the emphasis on, oh, he's building up the Atlanta airport, which is now basically the biggest airport in the world and kind of a central hub for the United States in terms of uh, air traffic. And, you know, he's trying to do all of these things, but is he really helping the people that need it. And I think, again, that's a very real tension that exists in any city. Uh, and it's something that continues to this day. Yeah. And I love that it's the people of Atlanta aren't going to take these very political, non-committal answers, you know, sitting down and they kind of, they get, they don't get raucous to the point of writing, but they get so forth, you know, forthright and wanting answers and stuff. They just leave. That's just their answer is they just have to leave the, the premises. And then, you know, you have the the actress, the mother who takes charge and talks about, you know, how they're not going to let them oversee the children of Atlanta and stuff. And it's a very powerful scene. And I think, again, Holden seeing that makes it all the more personal for him and leads to his sort of uneasy feeling at the end of the season. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those scenes because they were both really fantastic, especially the second one, Atlanta. For sure. So uh, that's all I have, Kevin. I think we've covered kind of the important points. Obviously, this is by no means... We did not discuss, we, you know, we didn't break down every scene of every every part of the show. But I, I do have to say, in many ways, I walked into this rewatch thinking season two was better. But I, I do have to say, even though I think there's a lot of really compelling stuff, I actually do think season one is is the better of the two. Yeah, I I would say that's probably correct. I think there's a lot more, like maybe the Atlanta stuff just in and of itself is maybe the most interesting stuff of the show. But I think seeing everything in Mindhunter season one come together makes them more interesting. Uh, did we not talk about the new FBI director at all? We didn't. And I think that that speaks to like, he's just there as kind of a filler. Like, I don't know if it was actor availability, but they clearly wanted the director of their program to almost be a non-entity and to just be like, a pencil pusher that just kind of lets them do whatever they want. Like he says, like keep holding in line, but he's not really, he isn't, but I couldn't help but get like Kevin Spacey vibes from him. And I think with house of cards and Fincher, I saw that and I thought, Oh, did they kind of want him to do like a, a Spacey type for FBI? Maybe I'm, maybe that's just me though. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think the performance is fine. I, I think that they just tend to really have a lot to do. And I think Shepard was kind of an obstacle and either, again, the actor was unavailable or they're just like, you know, we don't really want Shepard to be an obstacle. We really want them to kind of be able to do whatever they want and not have to justify it. So they kind of, you know, they put the investigation on the sidelines. They bring in somebody who's more supportive. That That's my perception of him as a character. I mean, it's fine. But it's it's quite the change from season one. Yeah, for sure. Anything else you want to bring up about uh, these two seasons? Uh, do you believe this was canceled too soon? So, yeah, give me your thoughts and then tell me whether you think it was canceled too soon. 
really great show. I'm glad we watched it. And I would say maybe more than any other show we've watched, it was the one that's canceled too soon. A lot of the shows that we say were canceled too soon in a lot of cases, like they had chances to go other places or they were just shows that we enjoyed and wanted to see them, you know, wanted to see more of it. But this is a case of like there's so much unfinished business and the show was such high quality that I for sure feel was canceled too soon. And I have no doubt that season three would have ended with uh, Bill Tench coming home, you know, grabbing a beer, sitting on his chair, just having to unwind after all the, the trials and tribulations his home and work life have come and he, he pops on the television ready to watch Georgia Championship Wrestling. And he sees Freddie Miller hand over a microphone to a man he introduces as Vince McMahon, welcoming WWF to TBS. And he explodes. Uh, he, he, that You just popped me for that one. Because I was literally going to make a Georgia Championship reference as a response to whatever you were going to say. <laughs> and you, you stole my thunder. <laughs> I did. I was like this. Uh, speaking that, of that TBS, has- you stole my thunder. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, I so Kevin and I in our private conversations have been saying how great it would be to have Bill uh, just going to indie wrestling shows. Kevin and I are the only ones that would watch the show, but it would be tremendously entertaining. It would be the best. Just oh, I, I we don't need to rehash all of our what we would want and hope from it, but it would be a lot. Of Bill being just disgusted by the type of people who would, would both fake. attend. Attend and be in these shows. I feel like Bill would be the type of person who's like, that's fucking fake. And Holder would be very interested and intrigued by it. Like, he knows it's fake, but he appreci- he'd appreciate the artistry of it. Yes. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and Brian would love it. The, 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 the way you do it is this is how Brian gets engaged in the thing he likes, and Bill hates it so much, but he has to go through with it. Brian becomes a Hulk Hogan fan, perhaps. Perhaps. And that disgusts him even more, not for the reasons that would exist in 2023, but. Oh, man, that's so that's so great. Uh, Yeah, Bill, Bill reacting violently to Black Saturday would be uh, tremendous, tremendous stuff has nothing to do with the content of the show. But pro wrestling will have something to do with what we're doing next month. It will. And actually, I think it's okay to say it'll be the rest of the year of 2023 is what we will be covering for Cancel. Kevin, Kevin, uh, this is your deal. You are hosting the final three shows of the year. So turn I will turn it over to you. Yes. So for the this is a show that I think when we talked about Cancel to soon, it was like it's been on the list from the beginning. And so we are going to finish out the year one episode per month doing the three seasons of Glow, The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling on Netflix. Very excited to talk about that. And we will be doing season one next year, but I will also be watching the 2012 documentary that led to the show being created, Glow, The Story of the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. So if you're one of those people who like watching stuff before hearing about it, the documentary is on Peacock, at least as of this recording. It's about 75 minutes, so not a huge commitment. And if you haven't seen it, it is absolutely worth watching. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll mention some parallels between the, that and season one and, and the characters and things like that. So that won't be as delved into deeply as the Netflix show, of course. But I think it is worth watching as, again, that is the that is what brought about the Netflix show. So season one will be discussed of Glow uh, in October. I'm looking forward to it. How about you? I am extremely excited to rewatch Glow. I am also dreading how angry I'm going to get all over again that season three was the final season. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be, that's going to be very sad, especially because I mean, you know, it's, 
we're we're getting into like that real life thing of COVID and stuff, really derailing a bunch of uh, television shows. So, yeah, it'll be it, it's a shame. Uh, it is an absolute shame, and we will address that shame in the final three months of the year. Kevin, I also want to give you the opportunity. I did a little bit of plugging at the beginning, but I want to give you a special opportunity uh, to plug Flooping the Pig. Yeah, so if you don't know, elsewhere on Enter the Real World, I do an Adventure Time podcast with my buddies Justin and Brad. And we covered the entire Adventure Time series, all 10 seasons, plus the HBO show Distant Lands. You can find all those on Enter the Real World. But... If you're somebody who likes to get your shows through your podcatchers or whatever else, and it's going to be harder to find because some of these episodes are a little old and there's the other podcast mixed in, it now has its own feed. So if you go to Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts or you start Flooping the Pig, all 83 episodes of Flooping the Pig so far are in their own dedicated feed, making it easier than ever to go back to and listen to the archives. But, of course, there's also the new Fiona and Cake television show, a spinoff of Adventure Time that is on Max right now, they're airing two episodes per week. And myself, Justin, and Brad are getting back together for the first time in over two years. And we're going to do five new episodes of Flooping the Pig, each covering two episodes of Fiona and Cake. So by the time this is out, you'll probably have at least a couple episodes uh, out there for you to listen to. So go want to listen to those either on the real world or on the Flooping the Pig podcast feed. For sure. Uh, so, yes, definitely go check that out. Uh, for Kevin, my name is Jerome. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back again next month. So the man who arrested Ed Kemper told Holden that losers are useful. Jerome, you're the most useful person I know.